Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age podcast. Uh, this is your host, C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I am speaking to you from Costa Mesa, California. Hi, my name is Stephen G. Fullwood. I am the exhibition coordinator for Marking Time, Art and the Age of Mass Incarceration, and we will be um, exhibiting at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture from May to 2000, May, May through December 2023, and I'll have the dates firmed up for you next time we talk. Hi, I'm Seth Rodney, and I am an art critic and writer. I contribute fairly regularly to the New York Times. I have a piece coming out in Art in America, I believe next week, and I'm a co-curator in a few shows that are coming up. One uh, in Atlanta at Johnson Low Gallery, which opens March 2nd or 3rd, I believe, a show called The Alchemist. And in 2024, a really large show on sports and sports connection to contemporary art at SF MoMA in September 2024. And I'm speaking to you from Newburgh, New York, where I live. This is uh, a show about, as I've said many times, uh, where we practice intellectual intimacy. Uh, and we are uh, changing the format. And we have our very first guest, uh, Nicholas Mirzoff, um, who is now going to introduce himself. And we're very excited to have him. Uh, before I do that, though, Seth, you're coming in a little low. Um, you're, uh, the audio on your end is a little low. Okay, um, um, I'll try That's to... actually much, that's much better. Actually, okay. I'm just getting closer to the mic. So. Okay, Sorry great. about cool. that. But uh, Nick, Nick or Nicholas, uh, so uh, pl pl Nick, please introduce mm -hmm. yourself. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Nicholas Mirzov, as, as you've just said, and I'm a writer and a critic, and I live and work in New York City. I teach at New York University, and I do a kind of work that I call visual activism, which is about thinking about how to activate the visible, how to try and make sense of the, the immensity of the visual culture that surrounds us. And in particular, over the last decade, I've really been focusing on questions to do with racialization and the politics of race around the Atlantic world. Uh, great, nice. great. Uh, thank Lovely. you for that. We, we, uh, uh, Nick was uh, generous enough to share the introduction to his um, latest work, White Sight, and you know, centered on the introduction uh, and the foreword, uh, which uh, we've all spent some time with. So, you know, mm -hmm. the goal here is to have a productive conversation with Nick uh, on something he knows quite a lot about. Um, mm -hmm. So, Stephen, Seth, I mean, do you guys want to start off with? questions or would you you know Seth how did you get connected with I mean so yeah. I should say so uh, Nick you were the very first person that came to mind for Seth we were kind of you're sort of brainstorming who who to, to talk to um, and uh, Nick you you jumped out so <laughs> yeah Seth, and, what, and, he, uh, and he did because I worked with Nick at Hyperallergic I was an editor there for almost six years and during that time it was Harag, who, my, my former boss, Harag Vartanian, who introduced us. And he thought that we would work well together. And we did. We, like, we, we got on like a house on fire. And um, I really <laughs> liked editing him. I liked that he, I have to say, I really deeply appreciated that someone who is as sort of um, well-known and, um, how do I say it? He's, 
He comes, Nick comes with a certain ledger domain, and that did not get in the way of him trusting me as an editor. There were times I remember too when I had to turn back something he had written and say and said to him, "Well, Nick, I don't think it's like quite there yet. I don't think it, the ideas are quite gelling yet." And he agreed with me. He was like, "Yeah, you're right." Um, and to and I really deeply appreciated that kind of trust. And uh, he's one of the people I, I most enjoyed working with, and I think he's one of the people who. When it comes to talking about monuments, I feel like Nick does this kind of thinking and writing that is not knee-jerk, and it is not, um, I feel like his writing is imaginative. So um, when, we, we, when, it, when, we, when I was thinking about things that we could talk about that are relevant now, I think the mm-hmm. conversation around monuments and statues and commemoration mm-hmm. and... Um, um, uh, protest. Um, I, I, I think that Nick has important and relevant writing on that topic. And to that end, one of the first questions that occurred to me when I read the introduction that I read, I believe it was chapter, chapter seven. Um, I'm looking at page 16. You sent around these proofs and on page 16 of the proofs, you have, uh, I believe the quote is, ab, Abolition would then be a reversal of the fall and change in the direction of time. The statue sought to foreclose any such possibility. So abolition, and I think you can, you, you'll be able to talk to this um, better than I can, Nick. Um, you're talking about the fall, the, 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 you're talking about Adam and Eve, the story of the fall, the, you know, particularly of the, of the fruit of the, of the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil and being uh, ejected from Eden. And this is symbolized, you say, in certain kinds of statuary. And that the Mm -hmm. statues that you were referring to seek to foreclose the possibility that um, evolution Mm -hmm, presents mm -hmm. to us. And I thought, oh, that makes sense to me because in some ways statues try to freeze time. Maybe you can mm. talk about what that means so, if I got it right. So, but so Nick, but uh, before you do that, we should right. we should uh, also say that none of our listeners have had the benefit of reading uh, the introduction to the book. So right. can, can, prior to answering Seth's question, okay. uh, can you give us a gloss of the argument, please? Sure. Uh, well, firstly, I, I want to second the pleasure that it was to work with Seth. I mean. You know this because you've been talking with him over this past time, that this is a serious thinker, deeply engaged thinker, and someone that really looks at the way that thought works in words. That's a very unusual experience, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, whether one you're a starting out person or a person who's been around for a while, you don't often get that level of attention from uh, a thinker, from an editor. And so... The point here was that always that Seth made my work better. And all of this work that I'm doing now is the product of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes out under my name because that's how books work. But I just want to acknowledge that really much of this work was thought through in a very extensive collaborative conversation that was had throughout the pandemic, mostly in formats like this online, where people were talking and thinking and then taking our heart in our hands and going out into the streets after May 2020 and encountering the need to take a stand, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is what this book is called, White Sight. 
It's about the visual politics and practices of whiteness. And it comes out of really the experience of trying to think with and alongside movements for the past decade. And mm. when I was working alongside of Black Lives Matter, my place is at the back to follow, right? And that's where I was. And the first time that I wrote anything at all about that movement was when Michael Brown's killer, Darren Wilson, was exonerated. And mm. they released the grand jury hearing, the whole archive. They never usually do that. And that included a batch of photographs. And I thought, I need to look at those because that's something I can do. And when you looked at the photographs, you saw that something very dodgy was going on. And, you know, to cut a long story short, I wrote about that. And that led to me being invited to give all these talks at universities and art schools and mm -hmm. colleges about Black Lives Matter. And there was an obvious problem there, which was that here's a white identified person often talking to a room largely filled with white presenting people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there were some of my friends who pointed out that this was an issue and I too thought it was an issue but I wasn't sure how to get into this problem and then Charlottesville just made it visible because here you had an active fascist movement in the streets of an um, American university town campaigning around a statue of all things and mm -hmm. I realized a number of things in that moment which is that I'd written about statues mm-hmm and that they had been something we thought were dealt with, that mm. that was an issue that was passed. And that's a metonym for what we had thought, I think, about white supremacy as a whole. Mm. That we kind of thought, yes, there's residues, it's, there's tiresome hangovers, but it's being dealt with. So this book, this book is an attempt to say, what is it that whiteness means when it's looking at the world? And if we think about white sight for a minute, actually, we already know what it is. It's that moment when a police comes up to somebody and judges whether they are white or not white. And different consequences, as we know, in so many instances from Eric Garner, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, so many countless more. Mm -hmm. Life and death consequences result from that moment. But we've also seen it in moments where a woman is walking her dog in Central Park and a bird watcher speaks to her, but because she sees him as black, she reacts in panic mm -hmm. and immediately starts to call the police and accuse him of all kinds of things. And so then I started to think, if we have this modality of sight, how is it perpetuated? How is it distributed? How does it sustain? And so it became clear to me that there was an infrastructure that supports it. And one of the forms of that infrastructure are monuments that are everywhere, they're all around us, and yet we rarely notice them. And that's part of their mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's part of their technology. They denotice mm. themselves, and that's what white supremacy does. It's everywhere. It's all around us, and it says, "No, I'm not here. There's nothing to see here." So that whenever an instance <laughs> occurs, it's just an exception. How could that have happened? Oh, that's a terrible mistake. It's, just, it's an exception. But I wanted to say, no, it's not. It's really a rule. And I felt it was important for me as a person who is, like it or not, identified as white, to really think this through to what 
how could we, as a group of people who don't like to think about this subject, who don't like to address it, come to terms with what is actually a long history? And I wanted this book then to do exactly what we're doing here, which is to provoke conversation and to challenge people. And I think about how it was so obvious to people within days of George Floyd being murdered in the streets of Minneapolis, that the thing to do was to go and take down statues, mm. monuments, and other likes of colonial pasts around the Atlantic world, not, not just in the United States, but in Latin America, in Europe, and in Africa, and what histories needed to be told to make sense of all that. In the campaign to elect Donald Trump, there was a poster that was circulated by a far-right group. They've gone out of business now, but their, their energy is still around. It had a mm -hmm. picture of the statue known as the Apollo Belvedere. Mm. And that statue is Roman copy of a Greek original that's in the Vatican. And this goes to Seth's question here, because the fall, the fall of Garden of Eden and the, the ancient biblical story to illustrate Adam, very often the figure was modeled on the Apollo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what we end up with, and this is a quite strange and peculiar story, is by the middle of the 19th century, two things have happened. Apollo has become the figure of whiteness, not a symbol, not like a representation, but actually what whiteness imagines itself to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you look in natural history textbooks from the time, to illustrate white people, there's a picture of the statue of the Apollo. Mm. And that raises a question then. There are other species of humans, according to this racist theory. And that raises the question, well, if there's an ancestor of all humans in the Garden of Eden, how, do, how does that work? And they simply foreclose it. They say, well, actually, no. Adam is only the ancestor of white people. <laughs> so it's like you put a whites only sign outside the Garden of Eden. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. And this is seriously taught. I mean, we mm -hmm. laugh. Mm -hmm. And you're laughing because it's stupid. And I had always done that, actually. You know, mm -hmm. when I had seen that statue of Apollo as the image of white people, I'd always make it a joke out of it. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, this is the best we've got. <laughs> We're not even a live person. A statue, a bad drawing of a statue at that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All of which is true, except, except that there was actually this real deep investment mm -hmm. that it actually did matter to people. And I remember watching the, a documentary that was made by Vice of all people, not normally um, insightful group, but uh, mm -hmm. about Charlottesville. And African-American resident of that town saying, you know what, that statue has always watched me. Mm. I've always felt it. Mm. Wow. And at that moment, I thought, you know what? Something, something that sort of became clear to me in a certain way. And a week after Charlottesville, I did a blog post, and it was called All the Monuments Must Fall. Mm. And it was a kind of, you know, situationist-style provocation, if you like. I wanted to say, no, all of these statues – they're all anchored in this 500-year history of racism and white supremacy. That's what these statues are. And 
it resonated with people. And we collaboratively produced a syllabus about monuments that uses that title, All Monuments Must Fall. It's online, you can find it. Mm-hmm. And then what's been interesting is that over the five years since, in 2020, Paul Prestiano, who's a big name art curator, did a piece in art forum at the end of the year, and he used that slogan, All Monuments Must Fall. And then a year after that, Gary Young, who's a black British journalist now turned sociologist, wrote a long piece in The Guardian, again, saying the same thing. But he went actually even further. And he said, you know what, you'll take down all statues that represent people because all of them are tied into this conservative ideology. And that resonated with me too, because yes, they Mm. are. Mm. This idea that there's a heroic individual out there who's going to save us. (laughs) Mm. Or who has saved us already. And we just don't recognize that they did. Absolutely. Uh, And who's around in, you know, and that goes from, that's part of our culture from the Western, Mm. you know, from the John Wayne figure who's still Mm -hmm. very iconic to certain white folks. Very. To the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is filled with the idea of, of the, the outsider hero saving us all. Mm-hmm. But the, the hero isn't purely a Western construct. I mean, the hero is a figure in culture, uh, is, is nearly a cultural universal. Um, Chen Shi Huang is often represented as a hero, even though he was one of the most brutal rulers in human history. Um, so... I certainly get the, so all monuments must fall, you know, I, as kind of a rallying cry, um, it makes sense to me, right? I mean, sort of this effort and this push for renewal uh, to sort of reckon with our history, which mm-hmm. I think everyone, at least in this call, is in agreement, is uh, predicated on a racist metaphysics. So same page. Um, but if all monuments fell, all monuments would be rebuilt, right? I mean, so th- there's there's something. Uh, uh, Stephen, sorry, go ahead. No, just thinking, and Nick, you were about to you were about to respond as well. But finish your thought about this. They will be rebuilt. What do you mean? I, I mean that I mean that the the impulse to monumentalize mm-hmm, mm-hmm. virtues and vices uh, is something that's been with us for thousands of years. It's not mm-hmm. purely Western. Uh, it's not even purely masculine, uh, mm-hmm. and and that the effort and the impetus and the predation to claim territory and to claim dominion over people would continue if tomorrow all white people disappeared. Like it, it it's not coterminous with whiteness, uh, or that's that's my feeling about it. And so I, I certainly that the, the the impetus to rectify. Um, our history makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but the tactic um, I would quibble with um, and and sort of the delimitation of the problem I would quibble with. Okay. So look, let, let's, let's think about this in, in a couple of stages. One is the history. I think it's important not to talk in terms of all human history, but to think about a substantial block of human history that goes from the beginnings of European expansion and colonialism 500 years ago to the present. And I think of a particular statue, I mentioned this in the book, as a kind of an iconic figure for how statues change. It's true, if you want to think about it in this context, that the actual ancient Greek statue isn't anything like the fantasy that 
people identifying as white now have of it. They were very brightly colored, for one thing. Mm -hmm. They were kind of garish, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, You can see them in the Metropolitan Museum now. There's an exhibition that tries to look at what they're like. And they don't look like what the fantasy version of classical sculpture at all, right? The 17th century is when people start remaking sculptures. I think particularly of the work of Bernini, who's an Italian sculptor who makes sculptures out of a marble that's intensely, dazzlingly white. Mm. That's just mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. that's a choice that he makes. Greek marble was actually kind of yellow, mm. but he wants to he wants that whiteness. And there's a statue that's placed in a town called Livorno. It's on the coast of Tuscany, and here's the Tuscan state under the Medici trying to become a colonial power. They try and create an empire in Brazil. Actually, they fail. Okay, but they iconographically they mark it with a statue. They put the Duke of Tuscany, Ferdinando, up on a white pedestal. We're very, very familiar with this. But because it was new to them, they actually had to spell out what that statue was going to do. And so they made four other statues at the base of that figure Mm -hmm. who were enslaved North Africans and Central West Africans who were literally chained to the base of that statue. And to me, then, the icon that we have now is that when we see a white hero figure on a statue, you need to imagine those four enslaved, chained Africans at the base. Because what symbols do over time is they condense, right, That as people become familiar with them. Mm-hmm. So I would agree with you that we're not talking about every statue throughout all of human history, but we are talking about a specific long history around the Atlantic world that was formed and shaped by Atlantic slavery. When we take monuments down, what happens? My argument in the book is that we create what I call a tear in white reality. In other words, it's a very normal thing. You're walking around a city to see a white man on a statue. You probably Mm -hmm. don't even notice them most of the time. Who is that guy, right? Mm -hmm. Take that statue down, and suddenly you've got a pedestal there, and what appears to be an empty space because we're so used to having something up there. And that immediately starts to ask questions. What should go up here? Should anything go up here? So one statue, place where I first saw this notably was in New Orleans when they took down the Confederate statues kind of early um, in 2017 and standing beneath the pedestal of Robert E. Lee. And Lee is the key figure here because the sleight of hand that happens in the 1890s in North America, Apollo becomes, becomes yeah, Robert cars. E. Lee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jefferson Davis says, Robert E. Lee is the highest form of manly beauty. <laughs> and there's a very obvious homoeroticism there, which is part of Apollo too. And so Apollo comes down to earth as Robert E. Lee. Nick, can I pin you down on this for a second? Yeah. So I, I, that piece of your argument um for me is a bullseye like i mean this is a particular moment in our history in which um there was a reactionary movement to re-enshrine whiteness 
um, and, a, and, a, and an entire revisionist history that was, we have to be clear, was largely successful, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it succeeded mm-hmm. in, in stopping radical reconstruction in the South, in which, uh, in which Absolutely. many communities were electing, uh, black representatives and black businesses were becoming commercially successful. So this was a clear racial militarized political project to, to reintroduce American apartheid. Absolutely, consciously done so. These statues were erected consciously. They knew what they were doing. Uh, this was not accidental. It was meant to shape the space. Absolutely. So, completely <clears throat> on the same page. <clears throat> but I feel like by circumscribing the problem in that way, <clears throat> it makes it a soluble problem, as opposed to what sometimes comes through, I feel, in discourses around. Uh, anti-colonialism and and i should say so i i do i do identify a tradition that your work is in is is kind of bifurcated right so it comes out of this visual cultural john berger etc and then also mm-hmm. you're bringing in kind of anti-colonial movement so i'm not saying that this is the extension this is the full extent of your work and you know i've only had you know this this few hours that i've had to uh, to spend with it so i don't want to overly pigeonhole it um but this stream anti-colonial stream that identifies the ubiquity of whiteness as an overarching uh, rubric um, to, to to really sort of um, uh, pathologize all aspects of Western culture, uh, I, I see as um, disempowering as opposed to empowering, right? So when you localize the very clear decisions that were made in mm-hmm. America in particular, right? I mean, because we are the worst, we are the, the mm-hmm. worst uh, 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 offender in, in this regard. Like, I mean, as far as the intensity of our racial politics here, it's not only here, I know it's in Europe as well, I get it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. we really, we, we supersize it, right? It's, we, the <laughs> McDonald's version of it is here, right? We're very so, happy about it too. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, mm-hmm. but if you, if you localize it in this way, if you identify it in this way, it has a definitive in, it has a definitive beginning. It has a middle, and I would argue that we mm. that we that that there is an end. And I feel like a lot of anti-colonial anti-colonial scholarship, post-colonial scholarship, in the last 20, 30 years, kind of immortalizes whiteness. Right? It mm. makes it so large, so ubiquitous, so powerful, so pervasive that one can only hope to escape it by being a worm. And not by overcoming mm. it with with political action. I I just want to take issue with one thing about the. I think you're going. I think you're running to the end of the book a little too quickly, Travis. Mm. Around um, what's up? Like I'm very interested in the meantime, in the in the what it means to take down monuments for someone just coming to some site about what that might mean. Right. And then the very thing that I think you're advocating for, if, I'm, if I have, if I hear you correctly, is that that's where that kind of imagination is born, I think. But it needs to be made visible first. And so, yeah. although the statues aren't taking down statues are not going to be the point, I mean, the, the end all be all. And also centering whiteness in this way for me isn't, I, I pulled something from Tony K. Bambara earlier, was it, um, 
she was talking, Tony K. Bambara is an African-American writer, passed in 1995, an amazing Harlem-born writer who Toni Morrison edited. And one of her famous books is called The Salt Eaters. And so she's being interviewed about this book, and she's talking about the ways in which she isn't interested in constantly responding to um, the imperial life. <laughs> you know, she's not, she says there's so much more going on and that one of her characters in her book actually said something to the effect that, well, black people are all fours. Some, some of us are all fours. We're just busy looking at the four walls that this kind of project has put us in as opposed to looking up or looking mm, around mm, in different ways. Mm. So I'd like what I've read so far of Nick's book in terms of just how many times have I walked past a statue and never paid attention to it? Mm. How many times have I, so I love the idea of the, the idea sparking something and the action of it. I think anti-colonial literature, I mean, if you're talking about Stuart Hall or some other folks who've been doing this work for a while, I think their imagination is a lot bigger than just statues or didn't, mm -hmm. I think there's some liberatory, really amazing work ahead, but it's hard to see in the dust of the fallen statue. <laughs> can, can I you know? can I take that and then hand it back off to Nick? Because I actually yeah, oh, sure. agree with most of what you said, Stephen. And I mm -hmm. and this touches on something Seth said earlier in the podcast in, in, in making this reference. The the act of tearing down a statue in sort of liberating both space and time, right? Because mm -hmm. you are creating, as as Nick pointed out, you're creating a rupture, right, in that space. The the thing that you never noticed before, you notice its absence. And that is a profoundly creative moment. You know, the, the creative destruction, sort of the, sh the, the Shiva moment, right? I mean, so absolutely 1,000%, mm -hmm. this seems to be a liberative act. And it has a definitive history and the potential for success. And so I, I actually tear them all fucking down. I absolutely, like, tear every, tear every statue of Robert E. Lee down. I have zero issue with this. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm interrupting you, but no, I, no, no. I, do. I, I don't, I don't know where I was going to go from there. So, you know, you guys know, um, that I tend to want to do, to, to make really practical analogies. So, uh, if we take, and I'm going to go to the maybe not logical extreme, but to an extreme with this argument, and take Gary Young's position that we tear down all statues, right? There is a statue literally catty corner. Well, actually, that's not true. I'm not facing that way, but the other way. I'm on Liberty Street in Newburgh, <clears throat> down the street from where George Washington's old headquarters were. And uh, on the corner of Liberty Street and Broadway, um, there's a statue that just erected this past summer of John Lewis. John Lewis, the congressman, yeah. former SNCC SNCC uh, uh, activist and worker during this, the heyday of the uh, classic civil rights movement. Um, you know, get into good trouble, John Lewis. Um, it's right there, and he's sort of rendered in this sort of, it looks like a famous 3D sort of copperized sort of figure, right, head and shoulders, um, wearing a suit and tie, uh, on a pedestal, on a black pedestal. And so if we play this out, and tomorrow we get rid of all the statues and we get rid of that one, right, and mm -hmm. what's left at the corner of Broadway and Liberty Street is just this black pedestal, no figure on it. Mm-hmm. What happens to the town of Newburgh 
when that happens. Like I'm, I'm like I'm really trying to imaginatively play this out. Like th- there is a tear, right? There is a moment of creative destruction. We don't have John Lewis to look to anymore. At least not the facsimile of him. Well, what? maybe that's the problem. We're we're looking at these hmm. kind of. I think it was Nick who said it earlier. You know, or I forget who said it, but this idea of the hero. You know, the one person or the idea of a one person, mm. I guess. Mm. Maybe that the imaginative space, maybe it doesn't look like a hero. Maybe it looks like something else. Maybe it looks like it's more of a collage of people, or maybe it looks like, you know, some more commun- community thing that, that's not rooted in a particular kind of... Hierarchy? Depth, yeah, absolutely. Steve, you, you, I mean, you started off the... the uh, we're, I don't think we we're recording yet, but you were talking about bringing the archives of James Baldwin. Like, and, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and Nick, you mentioned like the pleasure of touching something, this sort of the, the spiritual residue. I mean, you mm-hmm. didn't say spiritual residue. That's my kind of, you know, mm-hmm. gesture to Benjamin. Mm-hmm. So like in, in, in that way, like this is a deeply human impulse that pro-social primates have. Which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. which is to engage with and and idolize mm-hmm. other primates that inspire us. Like I mean, we we model ourselves on these social behavior. There, the, there's a reason that human communities continue to return to this monumental gesture. Mm. So, but anyway, I don't. I, Nick, but we've we've been blathering on. Please jump yeah. in. No, no, calls. All the points raised are really important, and we want to want. To, to, to get to this, the statues we're talking about don't have the erratic resonance that, of Benjamin that you mentioned there because they're not made in the time or that the person was alive. They're not made by that person. They're, they're a separate, yeah, that's a fair point. That's a great a point. separate commemorative project. Right? Mm-hmm. If, I think what's really important about White Sight is to understand it as a narrow, focused beam, like the way the perspective is usually drawn. Mm-hmm. So that it's, you know, 45 degree angle mm. focusing into on a particular topic. What that means is that there's an awful lot always already implied that's outside that space. Mm. So resistance, refusal, and denial are built in. Mm. They're always present, right? And I think that one of the work, one of the tasks for someone like me is to find that refusal and resistance in the white tradition, because it's not the job of African-Americans or in indigenous people to tell me to find that. It's my job to find it. And I think, you know, for example, I'm downtown Manhattan, right? I think of Bartleby in mm. Melville mm. Shorts. Yes, I, I just read that, that recently. Yes, yes. Bartleby <laughs> is, you know, a pale figure. Yes. He, Melville wants us to know that he's a kind of scholarly bookish type. Mm. And mm-hmm. he's literally working to circulate capital. That's what they do in the Wall Street office. Mm-hmm. They're right. copying out contracts. Mm-hmm. And Bartleby just says, I would prefer not to. Mm. Yes. And this is what I call the strike, right? This is the human strike. This is okay. It, it's not a strike for wages. It's not a strike for different conditions. It's Bartleby just saying, you know what? No. Mm. I'm just not I'm not going to do this. Mm. And that spreads around the office. Other people in the office start to say, my, I would prefer, and, and the guy who's running the office said, what do you mean prefer? What is it? The prefer has got nothing to do with this. <laughs> As we all very well know from our work experience, preference has almost nothing to do with our lives, right? <clears throat> these, are, these, are, these are traditions then that we need to understand. But we also need to understand the way that the impulse to, yes, by all means, to, 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 to connect with the sacred, to, to feel the power of other human beings, to feel the 
the relation to others, which is absolutely central to what I want to see happen, is forestalled by the colonial tradition that Fanon calls the world of statues. Mm-hmm. And he, Fanon is a, means that literally. He doesn't mean that metaphorically. And he's thinking about a statue like the statue of Cecil John Rhodes that was at the University of Cape Town until 2015. Mm-hmm. And, Rhodes, and Fanon knew this because the Algerians were taking down statues of French colonists literally the day mm. that they got independence in 1962. Wow. The very first day. Mm. Right? And there was a wave of taking down statues that moved down Africa, through Mozambique, through Angola, and it hit the breakwater of racist apartheid South Africa in 1975. And it sticks for a while. The students in Cape Town say in 2015, they look around and go, hang on, we took down apartheid in 1994. We still got this guy's statue on our campus. What is that about? And Rhodes is sitting there and he's looking from this beautiful backdrop out over the sea, just like that statue in Livorno that I mentioned earlier on, built in the 16th century. And they know that the kind of heroism that's being depicted here isn't an emulative one. It's a subservient one. It's a model that was created by the Scottish historian and writer Thomas Carlyle in Mm -hmm. an infamous pamphlet called On Heroes and Hero Worship that circulated around the colonial world in a way that's now hard for us to understand how how widespread this idea was because it later became associated with Nazism and fascism and it became taboo. So it was sort of the meme of its day. Precisely. Mm. And Rhodes knew Carlyle's work, felt himself to be a Carlyle-like figure, and so too did the people who built that statue. When they take it down, something is unleashed, both within South Africa, but elsewhere. When the South African photographer Zanela Maholi comes to Charlottesville, Virginia in 2015 to open an exhibition of their photography there, there's a statue in that town. It's been there since 1924, the high point of the Ku Klux Klan in Virginia, the statue of Robert E. Lee. Mm. No one's mentioned that statue in the Black Lives Matter movement at that point. Maholi goes there, gives a presentation, talks about their work, talks about her, their visual activism. The day that Maholi's exhibition comes down is when unknown activists go and tag the statue of Robert E. Lee, Black Lives Matter. And that begins our awakening, if you like, to the presence and the function of the colonial statue. It told us two things. One, I think that statues are what I would call a distributed network, like the internet, which is to say you have to take them all down because each one works by itself. They're not, it's not a network like the electricity network where you cut the cable and boom, the whole city loses electrical power. Not like that. Each one works in its locality in the way that Seth was talking about the statue working where he lives. Mm. It's slow, right? The Algerians began taking down statues in the 1960s. Here we are, 2022. Just a couple of weeks ago at West Point, which is the United States Military Academy, not far from where I am now, they finally took down not just the statue of Robert E. Lee, but a statue that was labeled as being Ku Klux Klan. So it took us 
took George Floyd, it took two years just to get those two things down. So, But it matters. But finally, I would just, I'd just end <clears throat> by saying this. No, no, please. Statues are the way in. They're not the be-all and end-all. Mm. They, they're part of, they're the most visible, the most toxic in some way, infrastructure of white site. But we've got to carry that on. So when the American Museum of Natural History said, hey, look, if you take down that statue of... Theodore Roosevelt. Exactly. Yes, right. Then you're going to have to question some of the stuff in the museum. I say, hell yeah. <laughs> well. Absolutely. The whole of that museum. I mean, really, actually, the simplest thing would be to just change the name to the American Museum of Racism and be done with it. <laughs> but they're not going to do that. So we have that. And we have borders. Borders are a crucial part of this. And... That's what the far right make that connection because it's so, visible to them. So Nick, I, so I, I just want to say, so, so, oh, sorry, please, Travis. One second, don't don't, don't forget your thought, but I want to just do this really quickly for the listeners who may not recognize this reference. When you said Fanon, you were talking about France, um, our France Fanon, who was a French resident psychiatrist and political philosopher, who um, from the French colony of Martinique, and he he's he's like one of the sort of touchstones of uh, of um, a thought for post-colonial studies, critical studies, Marxism, etc. Thanks. Go ahead. And Rhodes must fall activist said that his work, which is written in 1961, The Wretched of the Earth, mm. which I was quoting there, mm. was to them a handbook. It was a how-to book mm -hmm. in the same way that you might, you know, get a Malcolm Gladwell book about you know, how, how to think clever ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well. Not that clever. There, there, there's a strike. Not yes. clever enough. I, I feel like we have to close with that, actually. That's, that's great. That was great. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> so, okay. I don't mean, I mean, I do mean, I, I shouldn't, I, I mean to do this. Uh, it is intentional, but I don't want you to think that I, I am not grokking what I, th or at least I believe I'm grokking, you know, what I think the most potent core of your argument is. So, but I do feel like in the rhetoric and in the explanations and explications of what we're talking about, there is still a tendency to step out of the local and historical moment to again universalize. So let's talk about tearing down all statues. That would put us all in company with the Taliban, right? So mm. the Taliban very consciously want to erase all of all of the iconography, all of the here, all of the identifications, human identifications with quote unquote heroes, right? We should use the term capaciously. Muhammad fits a type of hero archetype as the Buddha does, as Christ does, as Rhodes does, as, uh, you know, Richard III did, I mean, you know, kind of infamously, right? Not famously. Um, so the, the, it was at Bamiyan, is that where the, the Taliban destroyed, all blew up, dynamited all of those, the, the, uh, the Buddhist uh, iconography on those cliff sides? So is that what we're saying? Are we putting on, when we say tear down all, because this is what, lang the language that we are using is not 
we should remove the racist lost cause statues that perpetuated white apartheid politics in the United States beginning in the 19th century and continuing into the 20th century. That's not what we're saying. I, I want us to be saying that because I am 100% on the same page, but our language keeps slipping towards all icons must go. So, okay, so fine. If we're saying that, if mm -hmm. all statuary must go, then we are putting ourselves in the company of, of a hateful group of people that are interested in erasing every culture okay. that does not conform to their metaphysics. So I would say, because I'm a, I want these statues to be preserved like archives to be studied. I don't mm. want it erased. So mm. earlier on when you were putting stat racist statues in conversation with <laughs> James Baldwin's archive, were you saying that, Travis? Um, I know you weren't I saying that. I would, I would, I <laughs> but the thing is this, right? I'm saying that that one, they're not the same thing for, for several different reasons. But one reason is, is that we're talking, my thing is research. My thing is having the stuff behind so people can actually see what you did. And I think in that way, statues shouldn't be torn down. They should be removed, but they should be in storage. They should be in archives so that people can know more about why they exist. So that I'm not for sense. erasure in that way. So that's what I want to add to that. So let's, let's think about this as a practical matter, right? The, in Angola and in Mozambique, that's exactly what they've done, what Stephen's just referred to. They, when the statues were taken down, they were all taken to a specific place. Uh, a government ministry, they're still there. Uh, people can visit them and they do. That happened in Budapest, for example, with the statues that were taken down of Soviet heroes and monuments. It's now become a kind of kitsch tourist attraction uh, to go and, mm -hmm. to, and to visit these things. There's a risk mm -hmm. there. There's a risk that if you if you create a, a destination tourism of white supremacist statues, guess who's going to go? <clears throat> now, the way to handle that, <sighs> okay. the way to handle that is what we've seen in somewhere like Bristol. In the, you know, the famous moment where a group of people went and they tore down the statue of Edward Colston, who was a slave trader. His statue wasn't put up until 1895, long, long after he was dead. Wow, 1895? Yeah, wow. like, like so many of these statues. Do, do you know, uh, Nick, do you know what the, the, the history of that was? What, what led to the, the statue in 1895? Bristol was a slave trading town. It's, uh, hmm. and uh, that's where its wealth comes from. And, you know, people in 1890, white people in Britain in 1895 didn't see anything wrong with that. Hmm. I mean, that, that's, hmm. that's the history that becomes. So one of the things that happens when you take down a statue is you don't just erase the history, you reveal another one, right? You start to ask the question that you just asked is, hang on a minute, why is the statue like that going up then? What motivated that? That doesn't seem to follow. This guy's been dead for 150 years. What motivates putting up a statue of a traitor and a racist, who Robert E. Lee was, in 1890 in Virginia, Absolutely. on a scale like we have never seen yep. anywhere else in the world short of you know these monumental statues? What happens with Colston is they take him down and they did something else. They threw him in the sea. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful gesture, right? It's a beautiful piece of performance art. Mm -hmm. And then they, they they fished him out, and they had a locally they had a, a, a vote that people could participate in as to what to do with him. And the winning option was to put him in a museum, but horizontally. Mm. 
Oh, interesting. So he's lying down. Okay. Can't still, he's still got tagged with the paint mm-hmm. that people used on that day. And it takes away his power. Mm. It takes away the erratic power of white supremacy that the, the upright phallic figure has. Mm. And you could, but you could still see the work. You can still, you can understand the context and you can start to ask mm. those difficult questions, right? And that's the sort of thing. These are the kinds of steps forward that are produced by pushing the argument in the way that Gary mm. Young and the activists in Bristol and myself are doing. I think, you know, one thing that Gary says, he's not talking about taking down, you know, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Um, mm-hmm. He's talking about this kind of heroic commemoration. Here in New York, for example, right, Central Park, there are about 110 statues. 107 of those represent white men. So if we were going to do the thing of saying, well, let's balance that out. Let's get a appropriate representation of female identified people, of indigenous people, of all the different ethnicities that make up modern New York City, the park would be full. There wouldn't be Mm -hmm. anywhere to walk. There would be nothing but statues. So I think collectively we need to have a rethink, right? And that's, that is Mm -hmm. what this, this this impetus is about. It, when you, it's a situationist slogan, right? I don't actually think that every single statue will come down, but all, we've got to start with, there's still 723 Confederate statues up in the United States. But more than that, there are hundreds of streets and markers named for Confederates. There are cemeteries, there are military bases. So one cannot really walk around the physical fabric of the United States. Columbus is omnipresent still, despite the fact we're taking down a few statues. There's Columbia University, there's Columbus Circle. Mm-hmm. So once, once we start thinking about this, we start realizing how much work there is to do. And you know what we're actually doing when we do this? We're going back to what I call the anti-fascist future. When the Allies took over Germany at the end of the Second World War, they put out a directive in 1946, and they said everything that has any connotation or association, any emblem, any marker, any poster, any museum, that has to do with not just Nazism, but the German military tradition should be removed. And they went fair and did a fairly thoroughgoing job of that, but they weren't able to do that, of course, in East Germany. And what have we seen since the reunification of Germany? We've seen the rise of Barai ideology in East Germany that is now, that, the former East Germany that's now created all kinds of problems for people in Germany. So when we think about this then, one of the things I think is we need to come into contact and to in, back into dialogue with a kind of clarity of thinking, of anti-fascist thinking that has been present in our tradition that we set aside. And that there's not a coincidence that the far right in this country have done everything they can to make the term anti-fascist toxic as if somehow it's wrong to be against fascism. The, mm. Therefore, by implication, what, what, what then? The fascism is okay? I think, I, I think that is uh, not the most generous reading of the objection to the ubiquity of something like anti-fascism, which I think is, I mean, it's, it's an important thing that we try to do in our conversations, which is to, to represent what is the most generous reading of that. I think 
the objection that you get from let's sort of let's bracket kind of the most extreme like you know actual fascists in the united states and something that's very close by to us in laguna beach is kind of the the holocaust denial library like like we're basically <laughs> it's i mean it's, wow, it's wow. the most beautiful stretch of coastline you know uh, in uh, on the west coast and so he, these people exist um there are more of them than we would like there to be but the the i think the peak that is uh that is uh, drawn out by the use of the term anti-fascist is that literally everything it, let me that's too strong too many things are labeled as fascist that are sort of run-of-the-mill political contentions between uh political parties that have opposing views of how to solve problems in the united states so that's that's the rejection of of the extreme use of anti-fascism. It's not, it's not, well, I'm it's sorry, extreme, go ahead. It's extreme to you. And another way of thinking about it would be to say, if we read Aimé Césaire and we read who the Caribbean thinker from the island of Martinique, who was the yeah. teacher mm -hmm. of Frantz Fanon, who was mentioned earlier. And indeed, if we read W.B. Du Bois in his work on the history of Africa and of, of colonialism, one of the, lessons that we learned from that is that understanding what fascism was historically, not rhetorically, not in terms of the, these grand arguments, but in a practical level, with the application of techniques and technologies that were designed to promote colonialism, brought back to what in imperial thinking you call the metropole, the home. The, so the First World War, in Du Bois's thinking, is the application of the violence that was applied to Africa and Europe. By the same token, so too, what happens in 1930s and 40s Europe is a, a way of thinking through the radical racialist politics that were applied somewhere like Namibia to Europe. Now, that then it gives us a way of understanding or thinking through in a historically specific way what otherwise seems to be a manifestation of pure evil. And that's not, I agree with you that that's not necessarily a helpful way to think because it, it then provokes a kind of religious connotation to the whole, the whole discussion. How can we eradicate something that is theological? But actually, if we start thinking about it in terms of practical techniques and technologies and histories that have been applied, that do have these long histories, then I think we can actually, it changes our perspective. Mm. And we start to see then that there are these connections uh, and that it is then a practical project to work them through. But I want to I interrupt here and say um, a couple of things that uh, are kind of niggling points for me. So Travis made this sort of provocative, not sort of, it was a provocative um, 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 uh, correlation between the actions of, I don't know how to describe, I don't know politically where I would put the Taliban on, on, the, on, the, on the spectrum, but the, like basically, there we go, right. Kind of religious fundamentalist uh, actions taken by the Taliban and um, 
the uh, basically correlating that to the actions that um, the sort of anti-colonialist um, move that you're suggesting, Nick, that we that we make. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, I, I heard what you said, Nick, but I don't, I didn't quite, I don't think I understood exactly what the counter was. Like, and, and, and I feel like this is a problem that shows up in the art scene, right? So when Dana Schutz had the painting of Emmett Till in the show at the Whitney and people like, um, Hannah Black called for, um, there was a guy who stood in front of the painting and wanted to prevent other people from seeing it because it was apparently, according to him, it was exploiting a certain kind uh, or taking advantage of, a, of, of of black people who couldn't defend themselves, right? Um, Dana Schutz's <laughs> painting was considered exploitive. Um, and Hannah Black called for it to be destroyed. And there were lots of people right and left in, in the art scene taking positions on this. But part of the position I took was that I, I, under no circumstances do I call for the destruction of work. I, because that does put me in cahoots, in league with, um, people who burn books. You know, people on the right who are like, no, we shouldn't be teaching kids about diversity. That book doesn't belong in our school library, la, la, la. I don't want to have any part of any sort of political program by people like that. So, so, I, I, you know, we're talking at the level of tactics, right? And that's not, does not describe one's whole political viewpoint. I get that. But I still feel like if you start talking about destroying artwork, or, or you're, you're, you're having the same conversation that book burners have, which is that these ideas are so dangerous, so toxic, that the, the, the things that convey them cannot be allowed to exist. What do you say to that, Nick? There's two levels of argument, I think, at work here. One is that, you know, we've talked about a statue like Colston being removed and placed into a museum, and that's worked. We've talked about a statue like Roosevelt, the statue of Theodore Roosevelt that was previously outside the American Museum of Natural History, that visibly represented racial hierarchy, the giant white man on a horse with a rigid, straight forehead, straight out of Greek sculpture next to racial caricatures mm -hmm. of an African and an indigenous. Absolutely. Figure. The problem has been, by all means, let's put this somewhere else. Where? The original suggestion was to put it inside the American Museum of Natural History. That was Holland Carter's idea. It's too big. It's too heavy. Mm. It would have fallen through the floor. Mm. Mm. So they decided they were going to place it at a park in North Dakota, which is named for Theodore Roosevelt. Mm. Difficulty was they didn't consult with the indigenous people whose land that originally was, who said, hang on a minute, mm. we're not very keen on having a figure that denigrates <laughs> precisely us, mm. Plains Indians, mm. uh, foisted upon us. So there are, you know, when you, you deal with the immensity of a statue like that, there's a very real practical problem, and I think there's a simple solution to it. Mm. One would need, I think, to create a context in which all of the different condensed racialized ideology that's present within a Roosevelt statue could be explained. One of the reasons I think we have difficulty with this is that the reason that you and I do the work that we do, sir, is that we know the visual imagery is, you know, to put it in a kind of 2023 way, 
a very dense amount of information that's downloaded extremely quickly and does its work very effectively. Mm. And the countering it is slow and difficult. Mm. So, you know, I've learned this as a teacher. Okay, so look, I learned this as a teacher a long time ago when I started showing racist imagery in classes. And what I would find coming back from from students was often a kind of very warped and distorted version of what I thought I had said mm. because the image had downloaded, as it were. Mm. They got that mm. immediately. Mm. And it was really difficult to, at the same point in time, to get the critique, the, the necessary information to them to think it otherwise. When we think about a, a movement like the Taliban, and that could be used in a very in a very kind of casual way in the same way that the word anti-fascist or fascist can be used. We need to think about the historical formation of the Taliban. Firstly, as a Western-funded resistance movement of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, when they were called the Mujahideen, uh, and they were given endless funding, and they were allowed to do whatever they wanted. And then, as has happened so persistently and consistently in the history of Western counterinsurgency, it turned around and bit us once the immediate goal of overturning the Soviet regime had been established. The destruction of the Bamiyan statues was aimed at us. It was aimed at Westerners who absolutely feel in their soul the terrible loss of a historical artifact like that in a way that Taliban at that point just thought, this is going to be a, we're going to get so much global coverage from this. And of course, it led into to the 9-11 attack. We have to be very then in other words, we have to say, look, it's a very specific set of events that happened there. So that Nick, isn't it's not the same so as Nick, taking down the statue. Nick, and I, 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 what I go I'm sorry, no no please, please, please finish away. One of the things that I see happening is a kind of again, this is a, this is a, a, an unfolding historical process. You hear a statue of the Empress Josephine that's in Fort de France in, in Martinique, which is the capital of that that city. And independence activists, because Martinique is still a French colony to this day, mm -hmm. it, it's remarkably, mm -hmm. you know, so colonialism is not, as we often think, entirely done. Mm -hmm. Their first, you know, they were very hesitant to do anything. In 1991, they, they graffitied it, that nothing happened. Then they decapitated <laughs> the statue to try and make the point. Nothing happened. In 2020, just a few days before the murder of George Floyd and the Central Park birdwatching incident, they finally pulled this thing down as, saying, as if to say, look, we gave you 20 years to do something about this, and now we're going to, now we're, uh, we're sorry, but this is the point at which something has to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that's the same impulse that happened with Rosemans Fall. First gesture of the organizers down there in October of 2014 was to go to the University of Cape Town and say, hey, look, the statue is just wrong at this moment in time in South Africa, and the university told them to go away. Mm. Then they take a, they do a gesture where they throw human waste that's collected in shanty towns like Kailicha, where many of the activists were from, onto the statue to say, "Look, these two different worlds are next to each other: mm. the world of statues mm. and the world of informal housing, what Mike Davis called the planet of slums." Mm. 
You can't have these two things coexisting. You've got to start thinking. Again, the university played for time. They said, let's set up a commission. Let's have a report. And the students just said, no, look, we 20 years on after independence, now is the time. So they, 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 they removed the statue. So what I want to say then is that all these, when these statue removal moments finally happen, they happen as the result of a long historical process where most of the other options have already been tried. In mm. Bristol, mm. people have been asking to take down that statue for the longest time. Mm. On the Upper East Side with the statue of J. Marion Sims, who's the appalling human being who conducted... Mm. I mean, it's just awful to even say out loud. Yeah, the obstetrician who, can, who uh, performed all kinds mm. of um, uh, uh, experiments on women without getting their consent, yes. Yeah, without getting their consent yeah. and without anesthetic, which was available at that time. Yeah. And activists in East Harlem have been saying for years, mm. 20 years, mm. please take this thing down. Mm. And it took the action that, to, that, that took place in Charlottesville to get that seriously done and to get and to get the statue removed. We still have a monument to Marshal Petain, the leader of Vichy France, in downtown Manhattan on 6th Avenue because somehow it was felt that if you were to remove his marker, you'd have to remove every single marker. And I didn't understand the the logic of that. Mm. What, what? Why, if we're commemorating people, does is it really appropriate to commemorate a fascist? And it's, it's not like the books about the history of Vichy France are going to disappear. Mm. So, I understand. Look, I understand that this goes deep. That's exactly why this is really important. So, it's, it's not a trivial issue, is it? I, I don't want to dwell on the the Taliban point, um, and so, but, but I I do think it is. Um, an unfair characterization to describe the sort of reactionary nihilism that is a part of uh, the top, that, that is the part or that is the strain in some aspects of of uh, the Taliban movement. Not all, right? Not all Talib. Not not all of the Wahhabi movement falls into the uh, into this uh, category. But in in the sort of what felt to me offhanded dismissal of the comparison what what i think is happening again is an over ascription of western agency for the ills in the world so it is absolutely true that the mujahideen were funded by the west as an anti-soviet insurgency absolutely fair to point that out as we have funded thousands of other groups in the world and as those thousands of other groups have not themselves taken on the project of monumental erasure everything that happens in the world is not a is not a reaction to western political movements that's a way to essentialize western power in in global in, in in individual movements and i feel like what happens in in to bring it back to something you actually you mentioned in the introduction to your book which i really appreciated um i'm actually if you're going to give me a second i'm going to go to the page i marked it, i printed this out and marked it up uh you uh glissant when you um, you draw from Fred Moten's, uh, you know, borrows this line, consent not to be a single being. 
And I feel I feel like this move, this philosophical move, to not monomaniacally assign. I mean, this is Ahab, right? I mean, to not ascribe a kind of heavy-handed, oppressive universality to being human is precisely the thing that anti-colonial critique does with whiteness. I mean, in this conversation and in this movement, is there any positive thing that can be attributed to whiteness? Can we say anything positive about 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 white culture? Now, I don't mean this. No, no, no. I don't mean. Oh, I'm sorry, Stephen. You're muted. Sorry, I was thinking about European culture or whiteness. No, no, like, no. I'm talking. I'm talking whiteness. I mean how the term is used. I'm not talking white people. I'm not talking about that. I'm. I'm not. I'm literally talking about the noun, the adjective, right? However mm-hmm, you're using mm-hmm. it, right? It seems to play the part of the villain in all of these critiques, and so. If that is its role, right, its explanatory power is limited because it will always provoke a reactionary response, right? This, if it's, it's, uh, it's sort of like whiteness is nearly synonymous with evil in these critiques. Mm. I, I mean, it, it literally does the, the, the same work. Like white, you know, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, to, to go further with it than that. So, I think that the solution to the problem is is literally embedded in in the introdu- introduction to your work here, which is that we should not over-prescribe, over-subscribe, over-determine what is a great variety of politics and a great variety of, of contested spaces. So I want to just, I'm going to complicate this a little bit. I know this is already complicated, but <clears throat> this is one of the questions I really had I sort of immediately had about, uh, on reading the two chapters I read, um, the introduction and the seventh chapter, was that at some point, and this is on page 68 of the proofs, Nick, you say whiteness invented aesthetics. And I, I just, I mean, it, 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 I just I I struggle with that. I just don't <laughs> do not see how that's possible. Now, and I and I want to say this for the listeners because aesthetics is a is a is a itself a complicated term. What I understand aesthetics to be is the discipline of the the, the sort of philosophical grasp of what it means for human beings to be confronted by to engage with the things they recognize as beautiful. When we see something that is that we call beautiful. Right. Okay. Yeah. Travis is using the term the sublime. Um, um, when we encounter that, there's some sort of bodily, philosophical, mental, intellectual process that we go through that we don't in other circumstances is what I understand aesthetics to be or to try to try to explain and understand. Does that make sense? Right. So how could, and this kind of, and I'm picking, sort of piggybacking with, on Travis's, um, contention. It's just like, how can whiteness invent this thing called, that, that I understand to be really a kind of philosophical problem? Right. So the, yeah, sure. No, look, the, 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 there are two, two questions here and they're different. Let me, let me address them differently. Mm. So Travis, I actually, I, I do want to set aside a blanket, overwhelming, single 
phenomenon that's called whiteness, because I don't think it adequately accounts for the very broad range of human histories that are labeled into that term. I'd say people who are currently laboring with being identified as white could be given the gift of no longer having to think of themselves as that and instead become mm. Italian, Irish, Jewish, mm. and the Same multiple page. the multiple Absolutely. intersections that that produces. So, I mean, right. I think of some, talking to someone like Stuart Hall, and Stuart used to say, who's a Jamaican writer and cultural studies theorist who I studied with when I was younger, mm. as Stuart would say, I have so many things. I'm Scottish, I'm English, I'm mm -hmm. African, I'm East Asian, I'm Portuguese Jewish. And I say, you know what, that's interesting, because that's a point of connection between us, that you're Sephardi Jew in some pine, tiny part, and so am I. We have a kind of relation there. And that's what, that, those are much richer and, to me, more beautiful conversations that we can have. Mm. Stuart used to say, mm. nowadays I like to ask someone, where they're from, and I tell them I expect a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And the whiteness is just like, yes, yeah, agreed. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it assumes so much, like yes. depending on right. who's hearing it. Yes, I like that conversation. Nothing's being seen by itself. It's like we're all seen together, and we're all creating this thing. And white just black just. You're right. Yeah. Can I just say, Amen? I'm saying I I appreciate that absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, again, uh, the question of the aesthetic is a very specific one. The, the word itself is actually invented in the late 18th century by European thinkers like Kant and Winkelmann, who I talk about in the book, who is a German writer about classical sculpture, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, who came to privilege a certain kind of whiteness as being the most beautiful form mm -hmm. that there was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a philosopher like the French writer Rossier mm -hmm. has talked about this striking development of, a, of the new idea of the aesthetic mm. in the 18th century, mm -hmm. emerging in this moment of empire, in this moment of Atlantic slavery, mm. and Winkelmann's exaltation of the whiteness of white sculpture mm. as something that was unique and that could not be found in any other human varietal that there was that somehow set it aside and apart. And, mm, mm. Did, you know, if I think of myself in the, long, in the long genealogy of thinking about the visual, and of course, we're often, I'm often told that I'm anti-visual, but that that's not true. That there was, though, this moment of, the, you know, you remember the postmodern moment of the anti-aesthetic. Mm. which was about thinking about how do we get past all that baggage without throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and still coming to think. You know, if I think of a Julie Murray 2 painting, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to describe it without using a word like beautiful. Mm -hmm. right? I, I can't even begin to approach what's going on there. Mm. But then if you listen to what she says she's doing with that mm -hmm. work, mm -hmm. And there are literally layers in her work, right? Uh -huh. And this is how I, I feel about seeing on white sight in particular, that what we're doing, what I'm trying to do with this is to unfold these layers. Okay. And so there are many things going on here. It's not a single thing. Right. right. That there are these, like in a Photoshop document, there are these multiple you layers. You use that analogy in the intro too, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Some of them are visible to us. 
Right. You know, when we look at the top layers, some of them are not. Mm. Something happens in a particular moment where suddenly, and I think this happened to us as a society in 2020, mm. that suddenly, as it, as it were, all of those layers became visible for a moment. And we were able to really look at our present as an assemblage of deep histories, some of which we had not really been aware of for the longest time, and some of which were very recent, and start to make some engaged choices, mm-hmm. really have conversations. And when I think about that phrase of glissance that Fred Moten has really put back into Circulation as Glissant, again, another philosopher from, from Martinique, this tiny little island mm-hmm. in. Punches above its hot. weight. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but why? Why? Because it's, it is at a hinge point mm. between Africa, the Americas, and Europe. Mm. Ah, it has been mm, okay. for 500 years. Mm. You know, it's a point of exchange, a place where everyone has a genealogy that's so dense and so resonant. Mm. Who's, you cannot walk down the street on a Caribbean island like Martinique without smelling, feeling history. The sugar is all around you, right? Growing wild like grass, which cane is a grass, right? You smell on an island like Barbados or Jamaica mm. the presence of that 500-year history. Mm. And you know, consenting not to be a single being is a phrase that has many layers of meaning to me. Mm. If we were to just stop on that first word and to think about what does it mean to give our consent? Have we consented to the society that we're a part of? Do we consent to the social relations that we're a part of? Mm. Why are so many intimate relations not consensual? Mm. Why is so much (laughs) still happening? And I'm not talking about some abstract place like you know, some unimagined workplace. I'm talking about the department and the university in which I work. Google it, you'll see. that mm. there are not, on a daily basis, people are being forced, bullied, harassed in a place like a university that's supposed to be devoted to, right. you know, these highest ideals. That's not what we see. And that, how then do we get into a place where we can start to say, one of the enormous reasons we're having this problem is we insist on thinking of ourselves as these armored beings that are single, that are entirely autonomous, that have no relationship to anyone else. But no human survives like that. Uh, we depend entirely on the care of others to survive our infancy, let alone anything else. You, you know, what's interesting about the, uh, I mean, to keep sort of strange company with the conversation is a lot of the language of consent and a lot of the language around um, kind of the unjust inheritance that we are forced to live with uh, mm-hmm. echoes a lot of Jefferson's early writings around the founding of the United States. So this puts us in very strange and mixed company, right? <laughs> I mean, and and as as we will find in nearly all instances in which we allow these kind of broad, clumsy categories to fall away. And so I really, I would really want to zero in on that last thing that you said. I think that this, that is precisely the way forward and through, which is to let these large, armor is a great word for it, right? I mean, what is armor? I mean, it, it protects you and it also distorts 
and simplifies a complex and sensitive body structure, right? I mean, that's yeah. what it does. And, and, and to let this fall away, to begin to see each other as, as these sort of complex intersecting human beings mm-hmm. um, is, is precisely the way that we get to the other side of, of the mess we find ourselves in. And I want to say that... I appreciate you saying it. I, re- I really do. I'm really in full agreement. Uh, yeah, I do too. And, I, and it reminds me of a moment I had when I was uh, at Hypoallergic when uh, we had this argument about whether or not we were going to capitalize white when they refer to someone's ethnicity. Right. And I, I've, I've told this story, I think, before. I think St- Stephen and Travis have heard it, but you, I don't think you have, Nick, um, that we went around the room and we essentially, Harag put it to a vote and said, well, how many people think we should do that? And I was the only one who said we should. Because what I wanted to do was not to make it seem like in, in some ways, kind of pursuant to the argument that Travis made earlier, and um, and you've also recognized, Nick, that I, I didn't want I didn't want whiteness to feel like it was like the sine qua non, like the 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 like the, the the demiurge of the entire world. Like whiteness is a specific thing. Like if you're if I'm black, then damn it, then you can be uppercase W white, right? <laughs> um, but we went, but I, nobody else agreed with me at the time. But we went around the room and I said, okay, you know, before we, before we like end this, I want to, I want to hear from each of you how you identify. So Harag said, I'm Armenian. I was born in Aleppo. I grew up in Toronto, la la la. And I, and I got around to me. I'm not going to name it. I'm not going to do everyone, but, um, got around to me and I said, I was, I'm Jamaican. I, I was born in Jamaica, came up in America with Jamaican working class parents. I consider myself Jamaican. And I, I want to be careful here. I think there was a person in the room who resented me not identifying as black primarily. I'm not sure about that because we didn't get along. And so I didn't really. Ask, I didn't ask her. And she I didn't just may not have liked you. She did, yeah, she may just not have liked No, I know she's a whole person, right? As a whole person. might be but I know, to her. But yes. it made me remember two other instances in which I've identified as Jamaican and I could feel a certain kind of like, kind of shrinking in the room, which I took to be representative of the feeling that I intuited as people didn't want me doing that. What they wanted was me saying black, right? And because that, I think in 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 certain niche groups, it feels like that is actually a position of power. Like if you say you are black, you're starting from a position of resistance or um, pride or self recognition. And I think that's one of the difficulties that we deal with, I deal with, that, that in our culture, it really, we, 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 have a, we have a real problem with nuance, because nuance sometimes reads as weakness. It reads as um, wishy-washiness. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting, very interesting way of thinking about it, and it might be a great way to start having these conversations would be to ask that kind of question, like who, how do you identify yourself? Mm. So now I have a historical problem, which is 
I would have said until 2018, I would have said, well, I'm of Jewish descent. Mm. But now I find mm. that a very difficult thing to say because of the way that the present regime in Israel has militarized mm. yeah. the term Jewish as an exclusionary one mm. to mean that mm. everybody contained within the boundaries of the former Ottoman province of Palestine Right. The only people that have political rights are, are people who identify, who are de defined by the defined by. authorities there mm -hmm. as being Jewish. And I say this in a very specific context. My grandmother and my grandfather met and married in Jerusalem. Mm. My father grew up there. This is not, a, you know, again, it's not an abstract thing for me. This is an extremely mm -hmm. concrete one. This is a historical problem then that manifests at the, at the lived reality of my day-to-day -day existence. How do I even, I don't quite have a word to describe then who I am. I can describe it as, you know, and this is that question, how does it feel to be a problem right. that Du Bois posed for mm -hmm. people of African descent in North America? But it's not only a problem for people of African descent. It can be a problem that's posed by certain historical circumstances. And I think mm. we are in a moment where it's true from almost everyone mm. that the question that you pose, that should be the easiest question to answer, is one that we have to actually say, you know what, that's a very good question. Let me really spend some time thinking about that. And I mean, to terms with that, one of the things that historians often say is that people will often come up to you and say they're descended from a king or a prince or something like this. Right. People rarely come up and say, I'm descended from a thief. <laughs> sure. Or, or the town drunk. Um, right. Yeah. Right. 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 And yet go back far enough and both of those are going to be choices. <laughs> so Nick, I want to say, I think that's always, that's always struck me as a, you know, I descended from somebody important or I was never enslaved. I was all that was because there are so few things that you can, rely upon to feel good about, right? Mm -hmm. As a person. So you strike these notes, you strike these moments where you like, you should like me or you should value me because A, B, and C. I've always thought, I was like, so why can't you just be you? Why can't be descended, like you said, from a slave or excuse me, like a thief or something. But I felt yeah. like it was always a matter of, and I'm specifically talking about the US, but it might have resonance in other places in, in the world, is that how do you feel good about yourself in a culture that constantly defines you in these narrow ways. How do you feel good about yourself? We all know money is the main thing. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. And then, and this goes back to the whole hero thing, right? Like the, who do we put on pedestals? Like we put up yeah. people on pedestals who are descended from people who were on pedestals. And we put on pedestals people who have somehow developed the means to gather enough capital in one place that it creates a huge mound under their feet and they end up being higher than us, right? Like those are the people that we worship. Like I, I, I made this, um, I made this point in an earlier podcast. I think it was last year. Um, and and Travis, I remember, was shocked by this. That when, um, which one of the Kardashians was it? Was it Kylie? It was one of them. Oh, yeah, was I be, was this. was hadn't had amassed enough of a fortune through her business <laughs> that she was close to being a billionaire. People That's on right. Twitter were or were asking her how to send how to how they could send her money to push, push her the over top. the edge so she yeah. could be a, a, a bona fide billionaire. Like giving I'm still blown like, away by that. I, like <laughs> talk I mean like talk about the impulse, right? To create heroes. 
mm. at yeah. our own detriment. Yeah. Like, well, you still think it's time for you to be, you, you're still going to be a millionaire one day, right? Or a billionaire. <laughs> so you're still in, you don't really want to change the game. You just want to be a winner in it. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I, an image can be worth a billion dollars, it turns out. That a picture's mm-hmm. not worth a thousand words. It's worth a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, the, the difficulties of the, of the work that we're trying to do to say, let's not do that. Mm. <laughs> that, that because it's like, it's, it's the odds of buying a lottery ticket, isn't it? That <sighs> your chances of actually winning that lottery are infinitely small, but it doesn't stop people playing because what the hell? It might happen. What when other, we did Occupy, what other game did is Occupy, in town? Right. Absolutely. Exactly. What other game? We, we did Occupy Wall Street and we came up with that slogan, the 1%. I saw an opinion poll that told us why we hadn't won. It was because 42% of people in the United States believe that they either are or will be <laughs> in the 1%. So, oh so I know, but it's easy for us to, I mean, so, and I laugh too. I mean, it's easy for us to laugh at the, at the absurdity of that aspiration. Right, I get uh-huh. it. Very easy, it, but but <laughs> yeah, but mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely something that people will aspire to because it literally does mean a better life for people. It means a better fucking hospital. It means a better doctor. It means a better. It means a better house. It means better food. It means better uh, access to transportation. It literally means a better life. And so yeah. we laugh at people that aspire to this. But that aspiration and that life that the 1% of the 1% actually get to live is manifestly better than what any of, than any of our lives sitting on this podcast. I mean. And so I, I think, I, I think we should remember that there are practical realities for the people that actually ultimately win that absurd lottery um, that we are, you know, there might be practical realities, but that's not the point. That's not the reference point. People want to be rich because they want to be rich. And that's how it's framed in the public discourse. It's not framed as I'll have better health care. I'll have a better house. It's framed as I'll have the things that will allow me to be seen as to have these things. But that's not what's really being kind of pushed, though. The thing that you're talking about, the survival, the Maisel's hierarchy of needs kind of thing. I think that that's, and, and I hear what you're saying, and I, I, I do acknowledge that point. I do think that it is selling people a little short. I think that the, those that's a shorthand for what people intuitively understand, that it is a key to a better life. Yeah, but I want to say, well, I think we can probably go back and forth on this a lot, but I want to say that uh, that was my intuition too, Stephen, that the way that the, 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 the sort of category of wealth, of the wealthy, like the 1%, is pitched to me, it feels like it's about power more than it is about uh, living uh, uh, a better, uh, better, um, um, mm-hmm. um, what do you call it? Um, lifestyle. A better life. Yeah. 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 I mean, having, I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel like that's the, that's the sort of punctum. Like that's it. Like you get to, I mean, look at what, look at the kind of reverence that people have for Donald Trump. I mean, he's a, he's an easy one to pick on, but I mean, really, like he's a parody of what poor people think rich people are. But that it's, that's it, right? Like he gets to actually go on stage and make fun of someone with cerebral palsy, and he and he survives the day. Like it's fine. Like he can he can he can literally. 
literally, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Mock someone with a degenerative disease publicly and just mm-hmm. and walk away unscathed. And I think that's, that's the fantasy of the 1% that, that, that I, people I, who aren't in it have. I, I'm not, I, I'll just see the point. I, I wouldn't push back, but I do, I know time is an issue for Seth mm-hmm. and, and Nick. Oh, yeah, yeah. We kind of got to get I, going, yeah. I, I would <laughs> like to give Nick as much time as he would like. Um, to Anything that you feel um, uh, that we missed, an aspect of your work that you think is really germane that we really didn't talk about, mm. anything that, you, any unfair characterization or anything that like was left behind or you want to pick back up, I really, I want to, I want to make sure that you have the absolute and definitive last word, so... <laughs> That's very kind. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I think, as I said earlier on, I think the point of the book is to have conversations like this. I don't actually want to try and, you know, pull some rabbit out of the hat and say, oh, look, this this is the thing that that should have been said. I I, I want to actually end it on a slightly, on a different kind of note, which is to say, in 2016, when I began doing this work, it felt like one was doing it in a very bleak landscape, mm, right? That mm. we weren't sure where, what things were going to look like. In 2020, it took another turn for the worse with the emergence of the pandemic. I actually want one of the things I do when I talk to people in public circ- circumstances about this say, I actually think that in many ways we're winning this conversation. Mm, mm. Okay. And I say that because not all the statues have come down as we had talked about at length, but a lot of them have. And we're having these conversations about why they're still there and taking much more nuanced positions on what they might mean. Mm-hmm. We've seen museum spaces that haven't changed for decades radically transform themselves. And these are places that millions of people go. So they're not bastions of elite ideology like they might have been in the 1960s when people were first writing about them. More people go to the American Museum of Natural History in New York than any other museum. So when that changes, it changes the lives particularly of children Mm. who get taken to that museum. Mm. Not have a racist emblem outside is a a change Mm. for the better. Mm. We're having these conversations. We have seen more white people involved in a protest against racial hierarchy than we've ever seen Mm, mm, in the United States. mm. Yes, we're seeing now a certain kind of hangover from that moment. I think a a younger generation perhaps kind of surprised that that first step into into activist work didn't lead to the thoroughgoing transformation that perhaps they had hoped for. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I I feel... It, it, it has marked a very changed moment for those of us who are a little bit older. And listening to an elder like Angela Davis say in the moment of 2020, I never thought I would hear this level of conversation about abolition, mm. to go back to Seth's early point, in my lifetime. Yeah. yeah. And I feel that too. I feel like we, have, we are beginning now to have a conversation which is possible to say abolition, yeah. and not to be laughed out of the room as just a sort of wild-eyed extremist. To say, well, how would that actually happen? What would that mean? Mm. What would we need to do in order to see those things come come in, 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 into being? So as 
as counterintuitive as it might seem, I want to say that this book, as much as it engages with some of the darker side of human history, mm-hmm. as much as it deals with some things that we might have hoped that we didn't need to still address, mm. it's actually at root a really optimistic book. Mm. It's one that says, if we can see what white side is as it is, we can change mm. it. The whole point is that white side is not something, you don't get born with it. It is, to paraphrase Simone de Beauvoir, one does not, one is not born white, one learns how to be white. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, the implication to me as an educator is that one can unlearn, unlearn it. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. That, and, Amen. And that it's through these kinds of conversations that that mm. happens. It's not through lecture, it's through discussion, and it's through people coming to moments of realization where they think, oh, you know what, that's right. I mm. hadn't really thought about that before, and I've seen that happen. And that's, if, if we take large-scale public art, like monuments, as, as a primary example, it's because that point has been so resonant for so many people. But we, we want to take them and say, okay, Let's think about why these things were here in the first place. What what does that now lead us to need to think about? Okay. That it's not it's not about statues. It's about right. white supremacy. It's about racializing hierarchy, and it's about the public display of those things as if it was something that one should not notice on a daily basis. I'm just so encouraged that the attempt to denotice that, which is what monuments enshrine, is at least stuttering. And during the pandemic, the Indian writer Arundhati Roy said something I thought was very beautiful, which is she said that every pandemic is a portal mm. that opens a door oh. to a different kind of future. Mm. The plague in 14th century Europe, if you experience that, obviously, for the enormous numbers of people that died, it's an unspeakable tragedy. But it actually opened a door possibility for those that survived to change to end feudalism in a way. We had that opportunity. I think that door is still open as much as people have tried to close it. Mm. DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Those kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and yeah, I feel like we've learned enough reflexively to know. I think of a march that I went on, I'm going to close with this point. In, on Juneteenth, the, 2020, that was organized by the Movement for Black Lives. And it had, there was so much thought and so much care. The march began at the African burial ground downtown in Manhattan. And this is a monument that I take every class that I teach that I can possibly squeeze it in to that monument because I find every single time that the group of people I take, however large or small, whatever age range, almost no one has ever visited this mm-hmm. space, mm-hmm. which is a space where 15,000 people of African descent are buried, who built New York, mm-hmm. who built the wall that gives Wall Street its name, that was put up to keep out the indigenous so the white settlement could survive south of the wall, mm-hmm. whose bodies are now literally, not metaphorically, part of the infrastructure of New York that holds up the towers around them mm. in which financial transactions are made. When 9-11 happened, many of the bones that were found under that site were Africans who had been buried there for centuries. And they marched from there 
and we went past the AIDS Memorial, which is just over here right. on Greenwich Avenue. And again, you know, I went through the AIDS epidemic as a young man, and this part of New York was decimated. But out of that dying came a protest movement, came an actor, mm. who, the AIDS Coalition to mm-hmm. Unleash Power, mm-hmm. who spoke about how silence equals death, mm-hmm. and who transformed that brilliant poster into an action program that allowed the federal government to accelerate treatment processes, vaccines, and other treatments much faster than had previously been possible. So those Mm -hmm. of us who are sitting here, like I am, with two COVID vaccines and three boosters in my body that allow me to get through my recent COVID infection without being hospitalized, I owe it to act up. They made that possible. Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. millions of us, right, are walking around alive today because as much as we mourn those who didn't make it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we stopped there, and there was, and we, and we remembered that. And this is a march where people of African descent are at the front, people of European descent are behind, but nobody's. It's not first and second. Right. We get we get to the water, the Hudson River, and everyone who's on the march is asked to take a flower and throw it as a gesture of mourning into the river. And there's a New Orleans jazz band that's playing. Well, we're doing that. That's an American tradition, jazz, formed mm-hmm. out of African slavery, but inevitably, absolutely a music of North America. Mm-hmm. It's a fusion that could have only happened mm-hmm. here, that yes, it expresses unbelievable violence, but it also expresses an optimism and a creativity mm. that can be, can't be found anywhere else because okay. of the interaction that jazz is, that brings together peoples of so many different backgrounds and kinds. And in that moment, we're mourning, but we're militant. We're understanding that change needs to happen in the name of those who have died, not just since 2020, Mm -hmm. not even since 1981, but since 1492, since 1619, Mm -hmm. since the first settlements, because we had walked that in the course of a three-mile walk that happened in a densely populated part of one particular New York City. But any other, in any other American city, you could conduct a similar transition. Mm-hmm. And people are beginning to think through what it means to live on this ground. Right. This, not, not abstract ground. This ground, the ground that I'm on here, Washington Square, that was Sapokanikan, which is a the village that grows tobacco, the little time and memorial until Europeans arrived. In the 17th century, it became the land of the blacks because half-free Africans, this is a Dutch mm-hmm. formula, farmed this land to, again, to send food to the white settlement downtown to keep them alive. In the 19th century, this is little Africa. Mm-hmm. This is the space of an extensive free black population. The first African-American theater that was created by Ira Aldridge is right. on mm-hmm. kid- Kitty Corner of my building. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> Good luck finding a monument to that. Somebody's working it- on it. Somebody's <laughs> got to be working on it. <laughs> <I'll> work. <laughs> Somebody's there working on be, it. Yes, right? yes. There should, yes, be, the, there should uh-huh. be a beautiful... That's the work that needs R. to be Aldridge. done. Yes, yep. yes. And, you know, 
150 yards that way is where the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire happened mm. that created the modern trade union movement out of the deaths of 126 women who worked in inhumane conditions and died in a fire because the doors were locked. Mm. And we owe to those women and the movement that came out of that things like weekends so that we can be sitting here right. having this time to mm -hmm. have this podcast rather than being at work, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the... So... My my optimism is based on a acknowledgement of the many thousands got of of the of the sufferings and and the and the militancy that allowed us to be in this conversation today, and hopefully to carry it forward. We all we can see is because we're standing on their shoulders that they allowed us this slightly slightly higher viewpoint that we can can stand from. I think that. What has happened here today and the seriousness of this conversation and the generosity of its spirit uh, is a harbinger of that optimism to me. Is this that, that, that if we can we can take these technologies that are designed to exploit us and turn them to other ends. We have struck back against the media monoliths today. And I thank you for that opportunity. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Nick, you are an amazing guest. I mm -hmm. really, uh, I hope it, I hope it's a uh, important of things to, to come. So I really appreciate your time uh, and your patience. And thank you. Uh, thank you for inaugurating our new version yes, of the podcast. Yes. I'm honored, man. I really, I really am. And, <laughs> uh, I, I have not been much of a podcast lab, but I've, I've installed the app. Uh, I've subscribed. And <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Okay. Awesome. Great. Awesome. Nick, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. So... Uh, Welcome, uh, listeners, and thanks for tuning in and, and hearing our inaugural interview. Um, this is our, you know, I don't, post mortem is like such a, an awful term for it. So I don't know our unpacking, and I'll probably have to come up with some kind of word for what we're doing, but um, not that it's a reinventing the wheel kind of thing. But um, so the three of us are going to chat about our conversation with Nick, uh, who I want to reiterate again. I'm not sure if he'll end up listening to the second part. It was a wonderful guest, and I really appreciate mm -hmm, his time. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I definitely have a couple of things that I, I wanted to bring up, um, mm -hmm. not like immediately, but I'm just saying that, I, that a couple of things that occur to me. So Steven, Seth, I mean, you guys want to, anything that jumps out you want to talk about first or. I was about to say, Travis, if you'd like to, you can go first. I'm really, yeah, uh, actually want to hear what uh, you have to say. curious about what you, what you're so the, thinking the about. first thing is, um, I wanted to, um, apologize to Stephen for a glib remark um, when we were talking about statues and archives um, and um, and he uh, and he were uh, rightly piqued I think by by that by that comment and I wanted to clarify it a little bit because what I basically was trying to say was I wasn't trying to say that monumental statuary or if we're going to localize it on subject like 
the subject of memorializing, say, a slave owner or memorializing a world conqueror or something like that is the same as an archive or the impulse to understand something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I was trying to draw a parallel to was that the because what I feel is a radical impulse in this in that movement to t- to tear down statues, even though I feel like it is a valid political position and even a, pro- a valid project, I do feel that there is a radical impulse. Uh, there is a feeling that if we do this thing, we will right the world. Um, and what I was trying to what I was trying to draw a parallel to is that. We will never stop idolizing human beings for their accomplishments and and their successes. We just won't. I mean, we're not ever going to stop doing that. We're not ever going to stop wanting to put statues up. We're not ever going to want to stop collecting archives of great writers, you know, influential so uh, thinkers, uh, athletes, you know, whatever it is. So th- that that's all. That's I wanted to put some some context on that. Well, that's good. thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I know you didn't mean that, um, but I'm glad that you said it because I think when um, our listeners, well, like we're talking to each other and I may not say it, but I, I know where you're coming from generally, you know? And so I, um, I think archives in and of themselves are problematic, right? So I wanted to say that in relationship to what you just said, but um, the, I can't do the, the grand equalizing that people do sometimes. Well, if we do this, then we need to do this. And I go, well, let's think about what that actually means. And so, I mean, would it, it, it never, the conversation never existed that we need to go into archives and pull out all the white supremacist people and burn our archives. That's not going to happen. Right. So that's where my um, logic or my thinking comes when it comes to statues. My cat is very needy these days. So you may see him several <laughs> times during the broadcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I am, and I'm also a critic of, like, like, as I mentioned, of archives, you know, and what they're exclusively inclusive. And they have these spaces where we're not supposed to question them. And so now that we are questioning them in institutional archives, but also in community archives, it's, it's, it's a helpful part of the conversation about how do we memorialize people that may not be the best people. <laughs> um, yeah. But I'm of the mind that I, I want... I want the benefit of that history. I want, and, and the I am talking about the humanity. I think we deserve that, you know, to reflect on. And I think, yeah, would Nick say I, something about reflecting or the danger of building uh, fascist archives? I'm like, dude, <laughs> we've already done that. Calm down. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> wait, wait, say it again, Stephen. I missed that. What? We've already done that. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. exists already. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, well, 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 Nick mm-hmm. did mention um, during the conversation that that when, and I don't think he used this particular group, but they're the group that's coming to mind. The Daughters of the Confederacy rescued one of these statues that had been torn down, or maybe not, not I mean, torn down maybe is too strong a term. It's been removed from whatever pedestal it was on, or plinth, uh, and was placed in some, I want to say gar- garden or some commemorative park, where uh-huh. there were a bunch of those uh, statues already present, mm-hmm. that becomes a kind of tourist destination. That becomes like a kind of, um, what's a kind of shrine where people go and worship mm. at the feet of like um, dethroned fascism, right? Like, and, and he said, and Nick 
rightly said that's a problem. Like what you've done is just sort of displace the um the It's so paternalistic. It's so paternalistic. Like, what what is I agree with that. The mm-hmm. the fear of what humans are going to do with this. Like mm-hmm. It's so, uh, you know, I, the, the, the best version, now it's not statuary, right? So, uh, um, go ahead. So. Well, it's just that, yes, but his position wasn't just, oh, I'm afraid of what they're going to do. His position was, here's a better option. And then he told us what that option was, which was. You mean the laying the statue down on the side or whatever? Precisely, precisely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. precisely. Yeah. Or, or so you know, displaying cool. it with the, with the, with the sort of visual and physical commentary of mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. that statue had essentially, I mean, this is probably not the right word, but in some ways oppressed, right? Like displaying yeah. it with the graffiti, displaying it with the blood, displaying it with the acrement thrown on it, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that that is itself turning the piece into kind of an improvised art piece right i mean yeah. you, you you're palimpsest yes yeah yeah, yeah. palimpsest is a great word for it mm-hmm. um so the, the which i'm cool with mm-hmm. I, I cool right that that's mm-hmm. this is not a universal solution mm-hmm. not everyone is right. going to want to lay a statue down on its side with or have the space on it, it. <laughs> or the space right or or have or have a museum space to lay a giant 12 foot tall bronze statue on its side. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, and this is, this is kind of dovetailing into the second thing that mm. is my observation that I really, I, I do feel like what I would characterize as a more radical impulse that is not sensitive to the crooked timber of humanity, right. To borrow Kant's phrase that was, uh, uh, famously uh, repurposed by Isaiah Berlin, like that you are not ever going to make something straight from the crooked timber of humanity. Like Mm. we, there is, there is no way to rectify Mm. what we are because we are always already what we are, Mm. which Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. desiring flawed, you know, hungry, sad, afraid, hopeful monkeys Mm. and Mm -hmm. and the impulse to want to tear down all the statues the impulse to come up with a better way Mm. to allow the people to visit these statues inevitably Mm. is an on-ramp to a kind of zealotry Mm. and a kind of intellectual or political authoritarianism depending on the conditions on the ground and I feel like they all and 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 Nick made this move, and I know he's not here to defend himself, and I, I have no doubt he would have a defense of this, which I would be very happy to listen to. But but Nick made the move that that into that that is a very common move on both sides of the intellectual spectrum, which is to attribute blame to our political opponents for the counterexamples that are inconvenient. So in the Taliban example, he claimed that the Taliban are destroying statues. Why? For us. Because they're showing off for us. I can't imagine a more paternalistic view Mm. than a a multi-thousand-year cultural tradition that is inflected by a religious tradition that is almost 1,500 years old, is performing for us. Like, I, 
how, like, there are so many ways to interpret what the Taliban are doing when they destroy Buddhist statuary, which, by the way, Islam has a long history of contact with Buddhism in that part of the world that has fuck all to do with the, with America. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't have anything to do with us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and this is something that, that people will, like, it's difficult to absorb the consequences of our more radical emotional intellectual impulses but i do believe and your example was great seth of the uh dana shoots thank you shoots dana shoots like this is the same human impulse it's the same one it's the same one that dynamites the buddhist statues it's the Mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. but but two things uh about what you said one and you've kind of been doing this and i don't mean to like make this sound like I'm calling you out, Travis, and, and sort of like slapping your <laughs> hand so with careful. my ruler. <laughs> so careful. I want to make sure that the light is just right before I say <laughs> Get in there and start swinging and... <laughs> so anywho, yeah. Steven, I, you, are so, you are so the guy that was like, there's going to be a fight. Fight, fight. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious because usually I'm the guy that didn't want to hear I know, that because I, I was the right. guy getting fi- fighting, right. being fought. But, right. but here it is, though. So I, it goes back to something Travis said years ago about mm. wanting to make sure that his position was clear. Mm-hmm. So he would issue these um, these these prefaces and the context. So right, when you right. said that, I just wanted to make fun of both of you. So sorry. right, right, that's that's cool. <laughs> so what I want to say is, you did this thing, which I, I've heard you do a couple of times, which is you said on both sides of of the uh, intellectual divide or both sides of our political um, uh, 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 thought. And they're mm-hmm, not. Mm-hmm. They're not two sides. They're not. I mean, we, we, you, I mean, I know you know this, but I want to just, I am actually more saying this for the benefit of the listener that I, and, and for the benefit of myself, that I, and, and I'm, and I'm reminding myself in this moment, there are not two sides. Like it's not the fascist versus the anti-fascist. There's, there's a whole, there's a whole spectrum of, of other thought out there around how to deal with just the issue of memorials, right? Like there are people, there are people who are nihilists who want to tear everything down and they, and they have, and there isn't, an, there's a, a pretty well documented, I think, nihilist tradition in the literature, right? But there are also people who are, um, really concerned in some, um, sort of, you know, real, real, real profound way about preserving history for everyone and would argue, I think, what precisely what constitutes an historical document, right? And so, argue that well. Go ahead. Yeah, so can I so can I clarify? So yeah. I don't mean that there aren't multiple sides to the statute debate. In fact, this I feel like this is what I was trying to push in mm-hmm. the conversation. What I'm saying is that when you write an essay that says tear all the monuments down, mm-hmm. you are borrowing from a radical zealot's tradition. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. And there aren't two sides to that. There is one side, and it's a horseshoe, and it takes people to the same place, regardless mm-hmm. of where, mm-hmm. their pol- where their politics start. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. soon as you believe that you can fix people, that you can come up with a way mm-hmm. to ensure that human beings are better, mm-hmm. and you pursue that long enough, it mm-hmm. takes you to the same 
place. So I want to I want to suggest this. Maybe it's not the impulse. Maybe you're misreading the impulse. Maybe it's not about making human beings better. Maybe it's about putting guardrails in place so that certain other human beings just aren't harmed by by ones with more power. I mean, I I, I feel like with that's what, but that's what people with power do. It, and they always play the safety put, card. Safety what, is always put, put, it's all put guardrails in place. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. This but, but is always so, so you wouldn't you would be against the seatbelt law. No, 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 no. Okay, so now we're going but so in in making that move, uh-huh. you're making the move that is often made in these situations. Uh-huh. I am not the one that is without I'm not saying I'm not attributing this argument to you. What I'm saying is mm-hmm. that I am not the one without context. I am arguing mm-hmm. for context. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that when you believe there is a proper way to display a statue so that people don't get into trouble, then you are then you are being paternalistic. You're saying that there is a way for people to do this. When in reality, there could be there are probably a thousand ways to deal with i'll give you i'll give you a perfect i'll give you a perfect example so in germany one in in Sachsenhausen, right that one of the the concentration clamps that is closest to berlin mm-hmm. their solution was to preserve perfectly the camp right and to right. allow people to, to to visit the camp it wasn't right. to hide it it wasn't to put it away right, right. the same thing the same thing in east berlin right. what the soviets decided to do is they decided to leave or i'm sorry they had put this giant um I don't know, it was Stalin or some mm-hmm. Soviet luminary is in this park. It's a massive statue. I mean, it's huge. I don't know, 20, 30 feet. It's it's absolutely enormous. Mm-hmm. They Again, they decided to leave it in place as a reminder of how these things could be repurposed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. Th- that is the exact opposite conclusion of tear all the statues down it's the exact opposite it's mm-hmm. not similar it's it's a totally opposite conclusion on how to handle it mm-hmm. it comes from the same space mm-hmm. we don't have to adjudicate how all of these things should be done communities should decide for themselves how they want to reckon with their problematic pasts so I'm somewhere, I'm not even somewhere between both of you. I'm actually thinking about it this way. And I mentioned it already about the preservation of those statues. I Mm -hmm. think that I'm not at the end of you're doing exactly the same thing. You're pulling from a particular handbook. I think, as I mentioned before, before the statue even falls, there are, there are people thinking of those multiple ways of engagement, right? So maybe that community was, does want to tear down a statue. Maybe they don't. But I think that when we get given, I'd like the destructive. Sorry, sorry, my cat is really having at me. Steven's like boxing with his cat while he's talking. <laughs> and the thing is, I'm boxing for him because he wants to get on my lap, but then kind of like squirm around. I'm like, if you could just sit still, then. I know, I know. <laughs> come on, then. Come on, come on. So, um, what I'm interested in is a creative that comes out of the destruction, and I think that when. Um, I forget exactly Nick's comment about that people were asking for a particular statue to be torn down. But during this moment of unrest, it finally came down. But there was there Marion was a history Sims, of it already. Yeah, right. yeah. The, the and, statue in Harlem to the um, obstetrician gynecologist who had um, okay. yeah, operated on um, women of color. And so f- for me, I want to see 
I want to see something else. I don't, I'm, I'm, I might be just being, being naive where I'm not really seeing the equation the way you see it, Travis, but I do, I'm hopeful of and really inspired by something's, there's a void here. Something existed here. What else can we put here? And it may be what you said. It might be the impulse to recreate the very same thing <laughs> that people are doing. And I'm often, often, uh, what do you call it, struck by, People who have been formerly oppressed deciding that they're not going to take up the mantle of oppression or to be the oppressor. It's like, oh, we, we just want to be oppressors. May not think about it that way, but they do have the right answer. And anyone who has the right answer, I don't trust. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You have an answer, you know. Right. I totally agree with you. And, uh, and this is something I've, I've said to myself. Uh, and I, and I may, may have said this in print somewhere. I don't trust activists. I don't. I don't trust activists. I feel oh, that I do. if be, oh, because, because I feel like activists are like are like hammers, and they're looking around, and they, and they most all most of the shit that they see are look like nails yeah. to them. Yeah. And but and, you, and I don't trust that impulse. But there's so many yeah. different kinds of activists. No, you no, know, no. You people, right. You know. And I know, and so, for example, but, but, I was listening to someone mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. Brooklyn Museum yesterday. I went mm -hmm. to go see the opening of their exhibition, uh, Mary Enoch Elizabeth Baxter, who is this amazing artist whose work is in Marking Time, the exhibition. Mm -hmm. And so oh, her, her work is really about time traveling and taking care of people who have been um, abused, particularly mm -hmm. children. I'll go into the story a little bit later on and maybe want to have her on the show to talk about her work. Mm -hmm. But what she did... When, you know, during the, she has a video, she showed this video, she gave, she gave birth in prison while she was shackled, right? Mm, and so oh, she's bringing attention fuck. to these kinds of things, right, around mm. the system. So she's, just, she's so articulate and beautiful and amazing. I love her to pieces. So I started writing a piece inspired by some of the things that happened yesterday. And one of them was some people, you know, you queue up for the Q&A and uh, you're standing on both sides of the audience and there are these mics and whatnot. And people get up there. And some people are reciting the very same activist points that, and they're young and they're trying to get the word out and they're a little nervous. I don't have a question. I just have a comment. And that, that space for testimony, I'm so excited about testimony. Sometimes I don't want to hear it, but I inevitably learn something from everybody who says it. And I turn my, my ear on as, a, as opposed to turning it off because of the lack of public spaces for people to physically, physical spaces for people to actually issue these kinds of things. Right. Absolutely. So that person, that young woman who couldn't have been just this side of 20, was like struggling to articulate what it meant. And she was linking all these things together, which some things I agree with, some I didn't. But I was like, I'm rooting for you. I think you'll find some space so that the rage and the other stuff, that, that it will bring forth something in you. And you'll be able to build from that. And hopefully you'll be in community with people where the fire won't burn out or you won't be burnt out by this fire. You know, but that resistance makes all the difference to me. I think it's so critical, which is why I'm not um, I'm not equations. I'm more like I want to see what happens here. I want to see what kinds of artwork I want to see what kind of political movements are inspired by our work, because a lot of some of them are, you know, throughout the throughout the thing, throughout the um, ages. But I want those young activists that Seth does not trust to <laughs> have a space to build build wildly in the in in a resistance moment for the stuff that they're getting because they're constantly being told that they shouldn't be doing this even from people who aren't their enemies you know their parents who might be concerned about them 
Focus on something else. Don't put yourself in the line of fire. What do you even know? You're so young. That's when people have those ideas. That's when a lot of people had those ideas. And a lot of them did change us. Yeah. So so I want to say a couple of things. One is that one thing I got from the conversation with Nick, which I don't think I do enough. And I mean, I think Mm -hmm. I tend to universalize things when I shouldn't. Um, But Nick Nick specifically does not. So when I talked about his statement that aesthetics comes is invented by whiteness. He explained that and he used a specific mm-hmm. yes, yeah. exa- example of Winkleman. And when he talked about the Taliban, to be honest, to, to be honest, I didn't understand what he was trying to say about the Taliban and why, in what way he was sort of refuting uh, uh, the assertion that, um, that Travis was making and maybe I was making. I didn't really, I just didn't understand that. Um, but what impressed me was that he has this very sort of fine-toothed approach to analyzing a situation so that he's talking about the historical context, right? He's not mm-hmm. just talking. Like, he. I remember when he, when I did my long-winded thing, and he said, well, there are two questions here. And this is like Travis's thing about the Taliban. Taliban comes out of this particular intro, uh, history. This is what, you know, there used to be the Mujahideen, la, 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 and so your occupation, la, la. And even though I didn't understand it, I saw that what he was doing was he was saying this specific situation was shaped this way, whereas mm-hmm. the situation with Dana Schutz was shaped a different way, right? There was mm-hmm. a different mm-hmm. kind of conversation happening. It was about, it was happening inside the museum, outside the museum, it pertained to the family, mothers, la, 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 la you know. So right. I appreciated that. Um, and I actually think that that was one of the sort of takeaways from the conversation for me, that I need to do mm-hmm. more of that. And to that point about the activists, like mm-hmm. this, there are specific situations I've dealt with where I've dealt with activists and I felt that their, their relationship with the community is not, a, it's not as helpful as other people imagine it to be. For example, oh, there's no, this definitely. woman, I've yeah. mentioned her before, Shailene Rodriguez. Interestingly enough, she's actually, um, there's a show up at the Bronx Museum of Arts right now uh, with the work of um, John Ahern and Rigoberto Torres. And one of the first pieces you see is a, a um, what do you call it, uh, a relief, uh, uh, a kind of um, figure um, that <clears throat> is Shailene, that is a, a version of Shailene. And mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. a kind of pain to her and sort of like you know, a kind of poet activist warrior artist la 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 um but i heard from someone else that she was at this uh, writer when i was at hypologic this writer who was a contributor um their name is um um Oh, why am I blanking on this? Oh, Billy Anania, right? Billy Anania. I was at some place up, 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 upstate, mm-hmm. and we were all having breakfast together. And Billy says to me that they really um, respected Shailene because they were listening to something that Shailene was some panel Shailene was on. And Shailene mm-hmm. says something like talking about the the negotiations, the ongoing, the then ongoing negotiations between MoMA and the security staff that they'd come to some sort of agreement. Um, I think they, before they, before they came to an agreement, a collective bargaining agreement with other members of staff at MoMA who were also mm-hmm. uh, either going to strike or on strike already. Okay. And 
Shailene said, uh, well, of course they, um, you know, of course they made peace with the cops first. And well, you shared this with us before. Yeah, you yeah and Billy mm-hmm. yeah. and Billy said that to me like that was some piece of like profound wisdom. Like, oh yeah, like she figured it out. Like and I'm like the fuck? Like how like why why do you think that that's insightful? First of all, yeah. Museum just they're not cops. <laughs> they're not like in what way are they cops? Because they constrain other people's behavior because they prevent them from touching and um, and destroying art? Like, come on, man, what are you talking about? And then um and then to like 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 essentially put her on a pedestal, right? Like say, like here's this activist warrior who's like telling it like it is. Mm-hmm. I just like that that is precisely the kind of activist I do not trust. Especially because of the kind of knock-on effect that she has. People yeah. around her who think that coming from a place of anger shows strength. Like, like, like making those kind of judgments is, is a strong thing to do. Like, that's not. It's, it's just not. So, um, <laughs> a, a few things occurred to me during that exchange. So, one, the thing that you... Um, are praising Nick for in that exchange. I wouldn't, I wouldn't criticize, but is a common rhetorical strategy, which is to create a disjoint or a disjunction between two things that are actually similar in order to elevate a, another explanation. for it. So instead of, instead of a, what I was gesturing to do, which is to identify a pattern in social formations, he was suggesting that there are, are are a variety of politics that are at play that make these things invalid comparisons, and I reject that. I, I do not think that's accurate. I I, I don't I don't accept. Uh, I I I wouldn't accept his characterization of the motivations mm-hmm. for the Taliban, and I would not accept. Uh, um, I, I would not accept his parsing of the dissimilarity of those two activities. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that those other politics shouldn't be taken into account. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, I'm not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, but what, what I feel like you always have to do with, with clearly, I mean, he, Nick is clearly very smart and very careful. And, uh, and honestly, mm-hmm. in, 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 a, in a wonderful way, uh, a wonderful listener. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is mm-hmm. definitely not the case with lots of intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. And, and he is, he is a wonderful listener. And, yes. and I mean, it actually really seemed to care about the objections right. which were being raised. So, mm-hmm. uh, which was made it a pleasure to have a conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but the move that is made in a work like white sight uh, at least in, in in the introduction that I read, and in other works like it, mm-hmm. is to bracket other uh, cross-cultural explanations for some of these activities and elevate something like whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Whiteness becomes a blanket way to describe these activities. Mm-hmm. The, the, the history of whiteness, the networks of white oppression in the United States, in the Anglosphere, become a way to explain behaviors, which I think are ultimately limiting because they don't take enough of the human experience into account. And we actually have better explanations for why these things are happening. And we can actually make these problems 
political problems that are soluble political problems. They just all take way longer than they, than we want them to take. Mm-hmm. And we, and, and, and they're, they're much more intractable than we want them to be. Mm-hmm. So it, there, there's mm-hmm. that, which I would then segue into, uh, unfortunately, part of like what my evolving worldview like sort of brings me to is the only way we send, seem to be able to reshape the world is through activists, through people that are, I mean, the, the founding, I know that, you know, I'm putting scare quotes in the, in the video, the founding fathers, right? The United States, these people were absolute political zealots, total, absolute extremists. Jefferson was as extreme as any, uh, as any political, as Greta Thunberg, like absolutely out on the fringes, justified mm-hmm. the French Revolution, thought that heads had to roll in order to usher in this new world. Like these, these people, are the, and they reshaped the world because of it. The world is shaped by this religious zeal. Like, and, and you know, whether it's secular or whether, you know, it actually is part of a, of a codified and recognized uh, religion, and it's not some mm-hmm. other just kind of politics, which of course it is. But that kind of religious zeal, that simplification, turning everything into a nail, right? The, the mm-hmm. thing that you hate mm-hmm. is the thing I hate. Mm-hmm. I, I this is why I will never be a very effective activist. Like mm-hmm. it's just not who I am. Mm-hmm. It's not how I see things. Mm-hmm. Um, I would always be the one in the back going, but wait, what about this? Right. You know, what about that? Right. Um, and so it's not, you know, I don't move at that speed. I don't move in that stream. It's not who I am. It's not who I want to be, but I do accept. And I do understand, even though I resented about the human experience, it's zealots who shaped the world. The reason Paris is so beautiful is because Napoleon fucking leveled the whole thing. Like, the, the, I mean, and and this is, you know, this is the consequence of that. Um, and so I don't like it, but, you know, here we are. I mean, I don't know how else things like this get done. And so maybe this thing that I absolutely resent, this, this zealot's impulse to tear down all the statues, to get mm-hmm. rid of everything, to do all the is precisely how we might move forward in this way, even though I resent it. Mm. I think, yeah, I, I, I keep thinking about what the world would look like. <clears throat> no, not even that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like what New York City would look like if we took down all the statues. And I don't think that it would be worse. I really don't. I don't think that it, I don't, I think that would be a net positive kind of like like no more looking up at the stat i mean maybe looking up at the architecture mm-hmm. you know maybe there's a way in which the the sort of the more sort of abstracted m- uh, monumentalization of 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 built spaces um Maybe that can happen i mean that can come forward in our in our visual culture without these um particularly carved out statuary uh, 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 I don't know what to call them um, 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 awards for people living the kinds of lives they live I don't know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean I, I, I keep thinking yeah that might actually be a net good even you look like you're right on the verge of I'm standing on the verge of getting it on Armor Funkadelic. <laughs> That's one of their major songs. I'm, I'm, 
I, I want to know, I would like to turn the conversation back to a particular point when it comes to the book. Mm-hmm. We've, we've been talking about the book, different parts of it. And, mm-hmm. but I, um, did an inordinate amount of research of things. Or <laughs> actually, it wasn't inordinate. It was just that whenever I read something that struck me, it inevitably reminded me of something else. I mentioned Tony K. Bambara, a Morrisonian, um, Tony Morrison, um, book Sula about this idea of sight mm. and being responsible for what you see. Mm. And I think I'm not convinced that narrowing one's focus completely stops other ways of understanding something. I think it can actually illuminate those things. So mm. the fact that it hones in on something like the way Baldwin described race and racial issues versus the way that the little uh, I read of Nick's work, the introduction and part of the anti-colonial chapter, I think chapter five, I was like this, I like the illumination that he provided mm. that Nick did around. I was like, how many statues have I passed by in my entire life? I paid no attention to, mm. <laughs> you know, so I'm always up for a pay attention to that. You know, and I think Mm -hmm. I told you both that I had fallen in love with New York City during the pandemic Mm -hmm. and decided to live here for the rest of my life and, you know, travel and whatnot, but that I love the architecture. And I would Mm -hmm. walk past buildings in Harlem and go, you know, never, I passed by this building for 19 years, never really paid any attention to it. So I Mm -hmm. like the illumination that White Sight is offering, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, the, The James Baldwin quote that came up was, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that depends on how you face it, I guess. But Mm. I like like what it's generally saying uh, that was really important to me. So, yeah, I think I'm interested in getting his book and sort of marking it up when it comes out and just kind of thinking through some of his arguments. Um, Again, I'm, I'm... Obviously, I know you're not saying you guys don't like all kinds of, I mean, all activists. You're saying that there's certain kinds of activists that, you know, make your skin crawl or don't feel like they're very. But there are some amazing activists, people who wouldn't even call themselves activists that are making shit happen. And that there's a chunk of those people that were part of the civil rights movement that were the engine to make things happen. Totally agree. You know, and and you can basically go to any country where there's Mm -hmm. some kind of movement going on. There's some women or some other folks um, who are doing the work behind the scenes and never will call themselves an activist. Mm -hmm. But that work is being done. And so I just wanted to add that. That's all. No, that's a fair correction. I appreciate it. Because of course you're right. I mean, of course you're right. Yeah. And and Nick made the point towards the end of uh, the conversation that part of the reason he's alive is because of ACT UP. It's because ACT UP activists got together and they kept pounding and pounding Mm -hmm. on the door until they fucking opened. Laying in the streets, being arrested. Constantly. Just constantly like, no, you're not acting fast enough. No, you're not developing the drugs um, effectively enough. No, you're not doing this. No, you don't care about us. And um, yeah, that that actually made a huge difference. Uh, I totally agree with him on that. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's like a lot of things with uh, our conversations on the podcast mm-hmm. is like I end up in a position and then, you know, given all my caveats and provisos, I still end up revising the position a little bit more, like nuancing it awesome. a little bit more. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, some activists are actually kind of great. <laughs> right. <It> was, <laughs> right. Right. And then it's the, so what I love about, 
It's an ongoing project thought yeah. and thinking and yeah. philosophy. It isn't yeah. you stay at one place and then yeah. you just plant your tree and then everything is through that lens. What I love is when I hear somebody go, he said that years ago and he's still benefiting from that. And I'm thinking, well, one always go, what is he saying or what is there? But also, I mean, maybe that's his one idea. <laughs> and that's okay too, you know, but I'd rather have the space to develop and grow and think through my positions. And so also when I think um, I'm definitely not like, I wish we would have been able to read the book mm. fully, maybe, maybe, you know, just to kind of get a better sense of where he was going with some things. Some things I thought I knew, but um, I was happy to hear about Britain. I was happy to hear about the Windrush generation yes. and the complications with that and keep Britain white and all of that, that just, I've been hearing about these things from different people. You know, um, people who live there now, who were parents who were part of the Windrush generation and how they experienced um, all kinds of, you know, terrible racist acts or what have you. But there are other complicated stories about people marrying each other and being in different neighborhoods. And that class really trumps a lot of this shit. I mean, colors there, race is there, but class, woo, you do not get out of class. Travis, I know you're looking like you want to say something. I want to say something too, but you can you can go ahead, please. Uh, it's really brief, just to say, uh, yeah, I appreciate the the context on the activist thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I of course, not of course. You are right. That is absolutely true. Um, I think um, that you. That that zeal, right? So instead of calling it zealotry, that zeal, that that mm. single-minded focus, uh -huh. is absolutely required to move anything anywhere ever in a complex society. Like, absolutely, there is no other way to accomplish it. And like, mm. just like in Buddhist iconography, where there's like, you know, there's like sort of. Uh, there's the courage to break through uh, uh, to enlightenment, and then there's the rage that is uh, in, in, mm -hmm. in excess and leads to destructive impulses. Mm -hmm. This is the same thing, right? So the, the, the kind of activism that we're characterizing now mm -hmm. is kind of the noble channeling of this impulse mm -hmm. to, to clarify, to simplify, to reduce complex problems, to know a simple issue, people are dying. Let's fix this. Mm. People, you know, people in the South can't vote. These mm. people, you know, they, we, we've segregated. So like, I don't care that it's simple. I don't care that you have a white-owned business with two generations. Like, I, we have to fix this thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so yeah. th 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 that, that impulse can be channeled in a noble way. And mm -hmm. it is incredibly volatile. And it can absolutely run out of control if it is not checked. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. As it has at various points in history. So mm. That's what I was going Mm -hmm. Um, I had a conversation yesterday with, uh, and I have to say that this is only a related point and I'm not really sure how it's related, but I'm going to keep talking until I find my way there. And there's <laughs> a, a, a woman, <laughs> Re Rebecca Pristoup, who's, uh, uh, an artist and, uh, she works for an arts organization and we were talking about community and, uh, yes. And how in certain, in certain instances, communities choose to put up, like, like they'll have a town hall kind of meeting mm -hmm. and they'll get, you know, there'll be an RFP and they'll have, um, these proposals come in from artists to say, okay, well, we want to, you know, oh, okay, like the thing that that just went up in Boston to honor Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, yeah. You, uh, yeah, you, um, <laughs> you guys have seen the, 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 <laughs> Boo ha ha around this, right? Like it's yeah. It's, I tried to ignore it, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I know, I know the artist. I know Hank Thomas. Yeah. Right. So, well, I mean, I'm going to put that to the side for a moment, but that's just an Mm -hmm. example of like the kind of thing that people would have weighed in on. They would have had town meeting, town hall meetings. They would have Mm -hmm. requested, um, uh, uh, proposals. They would have gone through the proposals. They would have chosen one, you know, la la la. There would have been a lot of back and forth. It's just, uh-huh. it's just a process that takes years. And I just talked with another artist friend of mine and she's like, yeah, that's why I don't do public art because I can't take all the meetings. I just can't do it. <laughs> so Hank went through all the meetings and this is what uh-huh. they developed and this is what came out of it, right? And mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was saying to Rebecca, you know, there are times when, you know, a lot of communities and I could be part of that community, right? That was like, mm-hmm. after all those meetings, they were like, well, we want like a 12 foot tall bronze statue that looks like, you know, um, I don't know, Dorothy Parker, right? Ooh. And I would be like, this is boring. I don't freaking want, <laughs> like I'd want something a little bit more, with a little bit more elan, a little bit more pizzazz, a little bit more imagination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Rebecca's thing was like, yeah, but you know, who are we to say that that, version of their vision isn't good for them. Like maybe that's what they want and that's fine. And I want to say, yeah, that makes sense. But if I'm part of the community, Mm -hmm. it's then incumbent on me to show up to those town hall meetings and argue for the more imaginative one. And maybe that is, and and then you're going to be kicked out of that footloose town. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be kicked out of the footloose town. That's why, that's why you just stay out of those arguments and you do your art over here (laughs) because public art is really, it's regulated. You know, I agree with you. It's regulated to the point where it's just, what did I start off with? I don't have that. It's just, it's just, it's like, it's Flintstone multivitamins. It's like mostly sugar and like (laughs) potassium. It's like, what the fuck is the point? To this, like, <laughs> but that's what artists are supposed to go in and kind of like interrupt and to show some different way of seeing something, you know. And they do, they do, Stephen. And then you end up with the mother. Sometimes you end up with the motherfucking bronze bullshit that is in Boston right now. That's like well, see, the what? Thing is, I think it's a minute. I've I've decided not to even engage too much about the criticism. I've looked okay. at it. And I've laughed at a few of the things that people have said about it. It looks mm-hmm. like a big dick. It looks like penises. I'm like, well, who are you? Where are you Can in I this? this I, when I first saw thing. it, I, uh-huh. I, I, like, I like it. I like it too. I actually don't agree. I, I When <clears> someone <throat> said it looks like a penis, like, okay, and so does every other fucking building in the world. Like, everything looks like a penis <laughs> if you want to make it look like a fucking penis. Like, this is not, like, I said that to be funny. It clearly was not funny. But, you know, whatever. It's, works, I, yeah. I, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's fine. But like, okay, can we let out the fart jokes and now can we have a conversation? I actually like it. Well, I, okay. I like its abstract nature. I like it. It seems there's a kind of intimacy to it. Yeah. I, I feel mm-hmm. like that's kind of, so I, I actually like it. And, and I, and I would, def- I actually spent a few minutes looking at it. I haven't actually seen it. I haven't been there. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I get, I feel like I get kind of what this person was going for. Um, mm-hmm. And there's something uh, inviting about it once you get past the it's a penis so, so i want to look say, at things over and over again sorry about this stuff i just want no to no say no this. you're right no you're right the notion of mm-hmm. i see it i get it or i don't get it is so oh, yeah. terrible <laughs> people like, i saw the movie i didn't understand <laughs> it i read the book i didn't understand it i'm like some things take a moment for right. you and also you you absent yourself 
as a player in this relationship. And I right. hate that. It's like, well, you see yeah. dicks, maybe you're hungry. I don't know. Are you sex? <laughs> are you horny? What are you doing? But also the 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 conviction in the voice in which someone's criticizing something like this is what this is. And I just go Absolutely. boo boo. Well, yeah, well, we have a therapy session. Right. You know? well, well, people were saying stuff like Dr. King deserved better, and but it's not the, it's not. The, but I want to first of all, I want to apologize. Really, I want to apologize to Hank. Um, he's never mm-hmm. going to hear this, but I I did say in a very kind of flip way just a couple minutes ago. I said. Bronze bullshit, and that's really wrong of me. I, I'm sorry. Okay. I was just, I was being, I was being provocative and flipping. It's not, I'm not okay. absolutely not right to do that. Um, I, but I want to also say that the the key um, criticism or critique for me of the piece, mm-hmm. and again, I haven't seen it in person. I think I need to, okay, and I want to, and I at oh, some yeah. point I will. Um, it's not the dick thing. It's that it looks from a certain angle like someone eating coochie. Like that's the that's the part that's like a, difficult for me because it's like because then it just kind of makes you know it just it just kind of not de- I don't want to use the word debases because you know sexual <laughs> congress is is fine like it's human beings having fun with each other that's fine but it just it it doesn't. It I, it doesn't seem to be what the piece was going for. It, Maybe he it, really was. Maybe he was like, "Fuck all these people! Like, I'm tired of all this mm. public feedback. I am gonna make a penis coochie eating bronze statue in Boston <laughs> to just of, screw with all these middle class assholes." A friend of mine said almost exactly that. What if it was about sex? But the thing is, so it's the co-location of two things you said. Seth was that. You know, people are saying King deserved better than this. What about a sexualized King? Maybe right. we need that. Maybe right. that's. I a, think. Maybe, I think King was plenty sexualized. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, he got was. down apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he got down. Yeah. Well, I think. I think in the public discourse around him, yeah. meaning yeah. that not just the yeah, uh, the yeah. affairs and stuff like that, but this is idea yeah. of our icons being really bleached. Yes, um, agreed. You Great know, word. or just distilled into. Yes. Yep. I have a dream. And this man wrote beautiful work and did some amazing things, did some things that weren't so fucking amazing. Exactly. But the issue I have with, I, I was at a Kwanzaa event a few years ago, maybe about a decade now. I was listening to people talk about different um, black folks. And one it, one was around Harry Tugman. And the guy, the way he described her, there was no way you could get your arms around her. Mm. You, you couldn't hug her. She she basically did not defecate. She mm. she um, mm. she flew in the air and she did all this stuff. <laughs> right, right, and, right, right, and I'm listening right, to him right, going, right. "No." So that's where I go. We deserve better than that. Right. That kind of right. reduction. That kind right. of. And right. also, right now, I, I knew that. I, I guess I knew that the statue, because which I didn't know was happening. And then when it happened, I saw it and I was like. This is interesting. You look at it from this, you know, because of different angles that people have taken photographs of it. But it didn't make me go, I'm mad. It didn't make me go, this is disgusting. I was like, I need to see it in person, one, and I need to see it repeatedly. Right. You know, and statues have a way of like um, being very different from the 
from the photograph of it. Yes, like, of you course. being in its presence. Absolutely. Yeah. And I Absolutely. love that Absolutely. idea. That excites me. So I've got to invent. Oh, you know, I'm going to Cambridge. Okay, I'll go to Cambridge and just pop over there and take a look at the sketch. Oh, just pop over there. You know what that language is like. <laughs> Don't just have, you know, you're in like, I'll just pop over there. I know, that always sounds to me like you're wealthy. When someone says that, I'm like, you're just going to jump on yes. your Gulfstream and just like go, yeah, yeah. wow, okay. Yeah. Just, oh, yeah, yeah, but sure. I want definitely want to check it out. And I recommend everyone else does too. You know, yeah, yeah. agreed. I, 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 I don't really, uh, well, I'm not even going to say it because uh, I think it's a good way to round out the conversation. Uh, um, uh, I was just going to make a comment on that. I, I feel like one of the, the things that happens in discourses on whiteness is they are incredibly white. And that what, mm-hmm. what, provo- what provoked that for me is, is your bleach comment. Like mm-hmm. that has always been for me. And I know Seth knows this. We have many conversations about this before we even started the podcast. And this is a lot of my intellectual work when I was doing the PhD is that mm-hmm. the, the, for me, the core of whiteness is, is what you had characterized that where I guess you were paraphrasing a friend of yours, Stevens was white misanthropy which is this disdain mm-hmm. for yeah. the body. It's a disdain for the body. It's a disdain for, for the nuance and particularity and mm-hmm. all of the ugly, messy, you know, sweaty things that our bodies do. That is absolutely what whiteness is. Mm-hmm. And, and bleaching is right. And, and it has nothing to do with, with, the, with skin color. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's, well, anyone it's an can impulse. practice it. Yeah, it's a, it's an impulse that is as old as civilization, um, and it's just it's it's contemporary iteration, and mm-hmm. and I think that so many people are trapped by it, and they have no idea. Even when they think they're working against it, they are actually working for it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it goes so, back to what so we, the conversation we said earlier. Sorry, before you um, before we got on about just giving a, um, a relative of yours some space, right, and thinking yeah. having a more nuanced yeah. way of looking at it, but you made that choice to do that. And sometimes we don't do that at all. We we're firm in our one thing, which isn't what I think Nick is doing. Just to want to be that clear. I actually no, feel like there's just a lot fair more. Enough. Yeah. Just so a- that we're clear. Yeah. 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 So, I, I, and I appreciate you saying that. And I, I, I want to reiterate again, I, that is absolutely not how the conversation with him went at all. I, mm-hmm. I, so I can zero in cause I don't want to give up what is, is uh, an intimate criticism for me. I mm-hmm. do feel like that is a lot of what white cultural discourse criticism is about, though. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I think that that is true of Nick, and, and the conversation with him was wonderful, and, and he was mm-hmm. solicitous uh, and sensitive in, in his responses. But that is what I get from a lot of Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. So should we talk uh, to the listeners about what we have planned for the next conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, for sure. Um, now, I think, so Seth, you and I had briefly spoken, I don't know, like a month ago, and mm-hmm. you actually had already suggested someone. I don't remember their name. Yeah, Deborah Cullen Morales. Like, I'm, I'm, We're hoping that <clears throat> we can get... A conversation going with her, um, Deborah Cullen Morales was once a curator at the Lenpes Gallery at Columbia, I believe. I believe that's correct. I mean, there were a couple of galleries at Columbia, but she was okay. curator, head curator of one of them. And then she got the job uh, to be the director of the Bronx Museum of the Arts. And I think she was in that role for a little over a year, maybe a year and a half. And now she is a... What do is that? What is that 
called, I know she, well, she's an officer at the Mellon Foundation. And so okay. I wanted to have a conversation with her about how all those three roles are related, but quite different. Being a curator, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being a museum director, and being uh, essentially an arts funder. Uh, so mm-hmm, we're yeah. hoping to have a conversation with her on that in the next little while. Excellent. Um, and if that doesn't work out, I have a, a suggestion on my end. Stephen, you just mentioned someone that you oh, yeah, yeah. working time. Yeah, cool. yeah. Um, so I guess I mean so we'll you know stay tuned. I mean we'll we are going to be better on social media about uh, about posting like who upcoming guests are and stuff like that. It was it kind of, you know this will you'll hear this in January, um, but it was kind of down to the wire because we're recording on you know the 23rd so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's you know we're down to the wire to get this out in january so but we will keep to our monthly schedule um and it is not always going to be about stuff like i mean you know we all have very broad interests um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the the one that i'm thinking about uh she's a, a psychiatrist and her main work is on like the importance of love and like her um, her kid um is students here so we have kind of a relationship with her and she's written a book she's wonderful um oh, nice. so and, and there's there wow. uh you should have her on next yeah well I, we, can, we can talk about i mean I, I we've already kind of got the ball rolling i don't know if if you've had a preliminary conversation or not so. i did mm-hmm. i did but yeah I mean, we'll so, figure it out yeah. yeah so i'm just saying that i think you know i, I know for my part and i know i mean i, I know steven and Seth well enough to know that they're very happy to talk about a lot of other things other than fraught political issues. Mm. So, oh, yeah. um, so, you know, just kind of be on the lookout for that. So, okay. And we hope you enjoy the, the new, uh, yeah. Cool. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Later. All right. You good people. Okay.